And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be, wherever you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. This time live from the Land of Enchantment for Sunday, June 20th, 2021. All those 20s. If we average them out, what would they come to? Anyway, first of all, um, happy Father's Day to all fathers and would-be fathers. And uh, I, I guess you can never be a former father. If you've been one, you're always one. Anyway, yes, happy Father's Day. This has been a weekend of very interesting uh, holidays. Uh, yesterday, Juneteenth. Today, Father's Day. So happy Father's Day, all you fathers out there. Um, apropos of that, if you go to Radio with Pictures, if you click on our URL, which is theothersideofmidnight.com, and you click on tonight's banner, which says very boldly against this really amazing artwork from a 1930s film starring Raymond Massey called Of Things to Come. Uh, click on that. That will take you to our guest page tonight, and then click... Uh, Right under that, you'll see fast links. Click on my name, and that will take you to my items and radio with pictures. Item number one, I thought kind of appropriate of what we're going to be uh, referencing uh, probably on and off again throughout the evening. Uh, this is a photo of a dad sleeping on a hospital floor as his wife was uh, uh, shepherding their young daughter to get checked because she had sore throat and trouble breathing and turned out to be nothing, nothing serious. She was out in two hours. But this guy apparently is a cement worker, had just come off a 12-hour shift. And as is very apropos these days where parenting is becoming more and more co-equal, certainly uh, during the pandemic when people were, a lot of people being forced to do office work from home. Um, there's all kinds of new things happening in the culture. And if you read our promo for tonight's show, you can see that I mentioned a few of them. But there does seem to be a kind of a general reassessment and awakening all over the world. It's not just us. It's not just the United States. It's everywhere. It's Africa, Europe, India, anywhere you, you kind of poke beneath the uh, covers. There are changes, fundamental changes. And, of course, tonight... I and my guest, uh, Rick Levine, who is a uh, very, very well-known astrologer, has professional expertise going back decades. He is the person I've wanted to talk to about this for some time because it's almost one of those, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? As we discussed with Richard Grossinger a couple weekends ago, are the changes we're seeing globally, societally, being occasioned by COVID-19. COVID-19 come along with a whole bunch of other changes which are being impelled forward by the window now presented by this very interesting, measurable, changing physics. I mean, this is this conundrum. When we see things happening uh, ritually, when we see agencies, government agencies, like you know my favorite one, NASA, doing things on a ritual clock. Is this happening because someone has planned it? Or is it part of a subconscious substratum moving us along like leaves on a stream? So we are impelled to do things at certain times 
on certain dates at certain hours because that's how the physics is changing. Part of our discussion tonight. Now, apropos of these changes, one of the things that a lot of economists are noticing is that uh, the predicted B-shaped curve where we fell off a cliff like a year ago because everything had to be shut down. And now that things have opened back up, um, the some economists have predicted that the fall of the economic situation would be replaced by a rise where you get basically a V on a graph. It goes down, then it goes back up. Well, that's not happening. And it seems to be happening not, not at least in so much as because of the enormous economic disparities in our economy. We have a few extraordinarily rich people, billionaires, multiple billionaires, hundreds of billionaires, you know, like Jeff Bezos, who I think uh, the other day, uh, you know, stated that his worth now, his net worth is something like $190 billion, some extraordinary, you know, amount of money for one individual to control. And that's equal to like, you know, several million uh, families or even more, maybe maybe 100 million. I forget what the numbers are because they go so much out of sight. Anyway, there seems to be, as we are recovering economically, economists are looking and employers are looking for, for you know, employees to come back. Everyone needs a job. You know, you can't really survive without a job, both uh, uh you know, practically and, and, and psychologically, there are a lot of people who are taking apparently a second look at their entire life and they're deciding they do not want to be in service industries. They don't want to work at Walmart. They don't want to flip hamburgers at uh, uh, McDonald's. They don't want to do a whole bunch of other things that they did before the pandemic struck. And they're reassessing, and it, 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 it seems to be permeating all levels of our society and culture and economy. And that brings us to item number two. American Airlines, among others, have had to cancel hundreds of flights because they don't have the staffing. And they don't have staffing to satisfy maintenance issues, safety FAA regulations, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a cascade. That's item number two. United is being affected. Southwest uh, is, they're all being affected. And what's so interesting is the demand is there. You know, people are flying almost now at a level pre-pandemic, uh, primarily because uh, we're reaching that 70% national uh, population of vaccinated people. But the demand is not being met by an appropriate supply of airline services, airline maintenance, uh, baggage handlers, for instance. Uh, and, and the airlines are now offering bonuses and all kinds of incentives. Well, this is only part of, I believe, and I'm going to be discussing it tonight with both uh, Rick Levine and Georgia Lambert, who's going to be joining us in the third hour. This is really far more interesting than just an economic situation. To me, it's part of a reawakening of people's souls and spirit and drives and reasons for living. People have had like a year to reassess where they are 
in their lives and they're making new decisions, striking out in new directions, which of course is not helping in the short term, the economic dislocations that uh, all of us have experienced. It's part of a larger trend of change, which I believe is coming and you know my model that it's being guided and modulated by this background physics, which guides everything in our three-dimensional reality up to and including consciousness. And it's modulated by various uh, physical factors that we're going to talk about again tonight. But the fact that we're seeing it at such a uh, fundamental level. Well, um, there's some other things we can talk about in terms of all that. But I want to introduce my first guest. We were having some Skype problems earlier. So um, let me ask uh, Keith, uh, you can type or you can, you know, just uh, talk to me on the air. Do we have Rick with us on Skype? And, ah, I get a yes. So a professional astrologer since 1976, the bicentennial, Rick Levine has become a respected leader in the global astrological community. He's the past president of the Washington State Astrology Association, co-founder of StartIQ.com, a founding trustee of Kepler College, and co-author of eight years of Barnes & Noble's annual Your Astrology Guide. Rick wrote a daily horoscope column for nearly 17 years, delivered via the internet to millions of readers per day through tarot.com. His expanded daily Planet Pulse is still available on Instagram at Rick Levine Astrologer and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Rick Levine Astrologer. He is the subject of a DVD, Quantum Astrology, Science, Spirit, and Our Place in the Cycles of History. His internet videos reach tens of thousands of people every month. And in 2018, Rick was awarded the prestigious International Astrologer of the Year Award by the Krishnamani Institute of Astrology in Kolkata, India. Uh, And that's enough reading. Um, Let me bring on our guest of the evening, Rick Levine. Rick, welcome back to the other side of the night. Well, it's lovely to be back. Can you hear me? I hear you five by, as the uh, pilots used to say. Um, We are going through extraordinary times. And I think one of the questions I wanted to ask you, which is the reason I wanted you to be on tonight, is has any of this been predicted in the stars and planetary configurations, or are we really in uncharted new terrain? Oh, I hate to do this to you, but I would say the answer is C, both of the above, both A and B. Uh, Yes, astrologers for years have been talking about the um, the uniqueness of 2020, 2021 into 2022. And at the same time, um, you know, you can generally predict that something's going to happen and still not know the specifics. It's like being in the middle of a storm, knowing that lightning is going to strike, but you don't know when and you don't know where. Why is it so uncertain? Because, you know, I've been palling around with astrologers all my life. My mother was very interested in astrology, so I was familiar with horoscopes and charts and, you know, aspects and all that from a very early age. But it wasn't until I, you know, reached uh, 
the point where I dabbled and then really gripped this idea of a an alternate parallel physics to the physics that we've been taught that I realized, unlike, you know, Sagan's, the gravitational field of the obstetrician is far greater than Jupiter during the moment of birth. It, it was at that moment when I realized it wasn't any of the familiar fields that science is, is uh, you know, has been telling exactly. us about, that it's, yeah. it's got to be something different, that I realized that it's this difference which really is the pulse of life itself. It's modulated. I've now been able you know, taking Robin around the world, measuring ancient sacred sites, eclipses and transits to to physically measure it in, in, you know, Western modality terms. But why is it still, why is there this window of uncertainty? It's almost like as there is a Heisenberg uncertainty principle in particle physics, you can either know exactly where a particle is or how fast it's moving, but you can't know both at the same time because one affects the other in terms of observing it, it's almost like there's this window of uncertainty around astrological aspects and planetary configurations where, as you just said, yeah, you know something's going to happen, but you can't tell what. And is that a failure of the model or is it a measure of the imperfection of how much we have yet to know about hyperdimensional astrology? Oh, this time I would say, see, none of the above. <laughs> oh, my, 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 my. I'm, I'm really batting oh, man, a thousand your, tonight. Your, your little preamble, I have like 11 places to jump in all at the same time, and it's impossible because you said so much in such a short period of time. Um, I mean, you're, you're talking my language when you're talking about Heisenberg, and the fact of the matter is that that we think of quantum physics as occurring on the microcosmic level, but if the universe actually is as we believe it to be, and that is a reflection occurs at the point of consciousness between the micro and the macro, then those things that we call quantum physics should be occurring on some, some way on the macrocosm also. And I would point to the simple fact when we talk about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, that the more we know about where a planet is at any given point in time, the less we know about where it's going and vice versa. Um, I would call this Levine's uncertainty principle. In other words, you look up in the sky, you see the moon or you see Saturn, but we see them as points in space. But the fact of the matter is, as we know, there is a resonance to these objects because they are um, they are basically um, physical artifacts of resonant frequencies, whether it's the moon about 13 cycles a year or Saturn about three cycles a century or Pluto about four cycles a millennium. The fact of the matter is that we can't know both at once. And then we come back to the um, the way we predict in astrology is based upon repeating patterns. I mean, we know that Mercury turns retrograde three times a year for about 20 to 24 days. And we know it's exact motions. And when it does, we have done this enough times that we can begin to make predictions around that or a new moon or a full moon because new moons happen 12, 13 times a year. But when you get to things that have never happened before or haven't happened for centuries, we know something's going to happen and it fits into a wave of other things that are similar. But because it's different, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. 
Let me make a small deviation. You just mentioned Mercury retrograde. For people who have been on another planet and not you know, familiar with what we're talking about, we're in the middle of a ret- Mercury retrograde right now, aren't we? Yeah, we're actually toward the end of it. Um, it began on May 29th, and it ends on the 24th. Um, and it's actually at the very beginning, at the very end of the Mercury retrograde cycles, often where the phenomena is the most noticeable because Mercury's speed, its apparent speed from Earth's perspective, is changing faster than it does at any other time. Mm. So for those that are not familiar with the term, describe what a Mercury retrograde means in both astrology and in common parlance. And then- right. it, 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 It's really simple to understand Anyone who has ever been on a subway in any major city knows that if you're passing a train on the track right next to you and you look out the window for a split second, you're sure that the train next to you is going backwards. And then you realize it's just not going as fast as you are forward. Whenever a planet gets closer to Earth than it does at other times in its normal cycle, whatever the planet is, and I mean here the the quote-unquote real planets, and I'm not talking the sun and the moon, um, but whenever a planet gets closer to Earth than it does at other times in its cycle, we lose perspective, and it looks like it's going backwards. It doesn't really, but it looks that way, and the ancients have been tracking these rhythms for um, at least two or three millennia. And when Mercury gets close to Earth, because every planet is related to a, an ar- a, a set of archetypes or concepts or symbols, if you will, that Mercury, as the Greeks called it, the winged messenger, uh, the heavenly messenger, Mercury is related to all forms of communication, language, interchange, mercantilism, where there's an exchange of goods. Mm. Um, Mercury has to do with, with sending and receiving data. And as Okay, such, hang on, hang on. Stop there, stop there. Why? Why have we, I guess empirically, astrologers going back, you know, countless generations, associated this fastest moving inner planet smaller than than any other planet in the solar system why size size doesn't matter why have well mass and size and distance from the sun do matter in the physics so why is mercury associated with communication what's that link how did that well go ahead yeah the the, the, the the question is not what's that link the question is how did we think that we found a link and then laid it onto that um, on how did we make a correlation exactly and i would exactly, say yeah. that we made that correlation by hundreds hundreds thousands of years of observation until what we know of as greek mythology you know the the planets are actually planet gods that each planet is part of the um, uh, the Olympic um, pantheon, and they each carry their own symbol set. And those symbols, even through modern times, largely seem to work, although we've developed nuances that the ancients didn't have. Which goes back to why Mercury and communications. Because it's at a frequency that seems to catch that. And when we observe Mercury moving through the sky, when we observe Mercury making contact or connection with other planets, it seems in some way to um, either increase or decrease or, um, or, or, or introduce static 
into communication. Now, wait, 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 I don't wait. know, Richard, if you're familiar with the work of Robert Nelson. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. The RCA okay. engineer in the 1950s. Right. right. And, and of course, you know, we moderners don't realize that international radio communication was like the only way to run businesses because you had to be able to communicate. And, and so um, RCA Global was responsible for that. And as you know, because of something, every now and then they would drop a day or two or three where there could be no communication and they needed to know what the hell was going on. And although Robert Nelson hates the fact that he became a bit of a um, <laughs> cult hero to astrologers, what he discovered was that the orbit of Mercury, when it made 90 degree angles coming, measuring it from the center of the sun to the outer planets, in particular Jupiter and Saturn, those were days of maximum interference. And they didn't always correspond with sunspots, which was the original thought, although there is some correlation. And so the question as to why Mercury communication, I honestly, um, I, I can't answer that. I can't answer why Saturn has to do with structure and stability and why Uranus has to do with rebellion and, and innovation or why Venus has to do with love or Mars has to do with war, but they do. Well, that's a very interesting admission. So you know the empirical pattern, you, you and when I say you, I mean astrologers in general, hundreds of thousands of generations have seen this pattern and mapped you know, events onto the pattern. But fundamentally at the core, you don't understand the physics of how it works? Yes. Wow. <laughs> did, you hear, did you hear that sigh? Yes, I, 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 loud and clear. <laughs> Well, that, see, that's actually reassuring in one way because a lot of, you know, Western science is very pretentious and scientists pretend they know when they haven't a clue. And, oh, yeah. and, and in academic journals, they, they obscure their profound ignorance with, well, such and such suggests that or uh, our understanding is incomplete. And the, well, and well, the translation Richard, what you're saying, is, what you're saying is true. And with great embarrassment, I would say, that many, if not most astrologers, share something very basic with modern science, with fundamental religions, and in particular, modern Western medicine. And that is based upon the knowledge that they think they have. They think they know more than they do. And I would say that, unfortunately, many astrologers fall into that category also. I don't. I'm aware of how much I don't know. So... What we're really looking at is windows of opportunity or windows of probability yes. of statistical occurrences. And over time, there's this huge pattern match so that most of the time the pattern works. But there's always, like in quantum mechanics, stunning deviations, things that don't make sense, that, that are outside the box, that are unpredicted and unpredictable. And correct, I guess correct. that's the margins. So is there anybody working? Let me, let me kind of look at this at a big picture. Is there anybody really trying to figure out the physics of astrology? Um, I would say, yes, I know of several and even many over the past mm, 20 to 40 years. I don't know that anyone really has. I think that, that when you talk about it, I think I'm – 
I, I, I think I think I am probably as well versed in the possible um, solutions to the question as anyone. But when it comes down to it, as I admitted to you, I don't think we know. But just because we don't know um, how life began, it doesn't mean that life didn't begin, even <laughs> though we don't know how. Very good. Very good. Uh, well, see, that's the part that I think has put off an awful lot of scientists because in their models of how the universe works, there's no room for astrology. There's no room for if Mercury is at 90 degrees. Oh, yeah. well, Richard, what you're saying is not only absolutely true, it's even more fundamental on two basic issues that I would suggest are actually two limitations of modern science as we know it. One of them is the fallacy of the requisite of repeatability. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that that, that the hypothesis and repeatability thing hasn't given us a, a, a ton of valuable information. The problem is that that true science says that something can never only happen once. <laughs> Because you can't, if you can't repeat it, it's not, it's not verifiable, therefore it's not scientific. You have to be able to repeat something in order for it to be judged as a phenomena that would be called experimentally validated. And unfortunately, the universe doesn't work that way. There are things like positions of the planets, like the appearance of Richard Hoagland on this planet or Rick Levine. We only appear once. <laughs> and so, and so the, the model breaks down when it comes to astrology, but the sect is even more basic, and that is in the Newtonian uh, paradigm, time is considered to be an independent variable, and it's considered to be mechanistic. Now, obviously, um, Einstein and the uh, uh, quantum reality uh, club maybe has bent that out of shape a little bit, but the idea that if you drop something from the leaning tower of Pisa and it accelerates at 32 feet per second per second, it doesn't matter whether you do that on January 3rd in the afternoon or on July 5th, 150 years later in the middle of the night, because time does not impact the mechanical interactions um, of the Newtonian universe. However, if you make that assumption, then astrology a priori just doesn't work. Well, but what you all just said was true up until a certain point, and then it became untrue through the modalities of Western physics. And we've got about exactly. a, we've got about a minute till the bottom of the hour, so I'll pick this up on the other side. But just briefly, there have been a number of experiments, and I've obviously now gone looking for them, where something that was presumed from the 1950s forward through the work of a physicist named Walter Libby who charted the decay rate of an obscure isotope called carbon-14, he found out that carbon-14 has a half-life, meaning over a certain period of time, half of the atoms will decay of around between five and 6,000 years. I don't remember the exact number. I think it's closer to 6,000, 5,000. And the idea is that then in the next 6,000 years, half of the remaining atoms will decay. You can't tell which one, but statistically half of them will go away in another 6,000 years. And then in another 6,000, half of those remaining, well, that kind of thing. That's the radioactive decay rate. And it was presumed to be immutable 
and we're going to pick this up in a couple of minutes on the other side. Right. He won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry uh, in 1964 for figuring out the radiocarbon-14 dating. Yeah, except it turns out now that the most constant clock in the universe, they thought up until that time, was abrogated by experiments which showed that radioactive decay rates are not constant. And on that note, we will hold it there. My guest of the morning, my first guest uh, for the first part of the show is Rick Levine. He is um, probably, I would say, without fear of overstatement uh, or understatement, one of the world's preemptive and preeminent uh, astrologers. And you just heard him admit that as a science, astrologers themselves do not yet know how astrology works. That's where I think the hyperdimensional model will come into its own. So on that note, let's listen to this, because this is so appropriate. You wish upon a star Makes no difference who you are Anything your heart desires Will come to you If your heart is in your dream, no request is too extreme. When you wish upon a star, as dreamers do. One of the ways that this organized crime system has been able to monopolize the media and has been able to uh, control the government and control perception on a wide scale is because it's the banks at the core And they've been given the privilege of creating money out of thin air using a technique called fractional reserve banking. Where the central banks backstop the money center banks to create money out of thin air. So when you go to get a loan, whether it's a mortgage or a car loan, that's not deposit money that they're loaning you. Uh, they just credit your account with some dollar credits, and you're off to the races. And then you spend the rest of your life paying interest on a mortgage that somebody created out of thin air. And that's the reason why the bank is the largest building in every city on the planet because they're making outrageous profits by getting to loan money at interest that they created out of thin air.
This is Etienne de la Boise Squared, the author of Government's Biggest Scam in History, Exposed. And some of my favorite conversations are the ones that I have on the other side of the news. With Timothy, Netta, and Kentia. Thank you for doing what you do and providing the service that you provide. Welcome back, Rick. I, I thought that was a little appropriate dip into nostalgia. That that song, when I first heard it back when uh, it was actually one of the theme songs of a Disney film called Pinocchio, it yep. it kind of resonated with me because it was like there has to be, if that's true, a connection. And what I'm very humbled by and sobered by is that even after all these centuries and millennia, we don't really know as an organized science what that connection is. And I find that very, very humbling. We don't know what gravity is either. Uh, yeah, come on. Anyway, so so let me let me get <laughs> let me let me get back to the radioactive decay thing because there was there was a guy in um in at the University of Illinois a few weeks ago, no, I'm sorry, not weeks ago. I'm thinking another experiment I'm going to talk about momentarily. This was several years ago, and I forget his name. It begins with an F. I think it's Fishback or Fishbine or whatever. Anyway, he noticed that the um, decay rate of certain radioactive materials in his laboratory appeared to change with the position of the Earth around the sun in the course of a year. And I'm hoping I'm getting this right now. He found that the decay rate increased when we were going through the uh, winter solstice, which of course is uh, December 21st, and slowed down around the summer solstice, which I think is what, tomorrow? Or day after tomorrow? It's, it's, it's right now, right in this moment. Oh, so it's, it's the 20th this year and it's right now. Okay. It, yeah, it, it, it varies, but it's actually 8.32. It was 8.32 p.m. tonight. So we are at the moment of the 
sun holding still in its northern and southern uh, route it, that, it, that it takes because of the Earth's tilt. Hmm. Anyway, this guy, this physicist at the University of Illinois discovered that the radioactive, I think it was radium it was measuring, some isotope, changed with the year. And unfortunately, he associated that with the change, the small change, like half a million miles of distance between the Earth and the sun, between the summer solstice and the winter solstice, the Earth's orbit is not perfectly circular. We actually are a little farther from the sun during the winter than we are during the summer. Uh, I'm sorry. We are actually closer to the sun during the winter. Exactly. Actually. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yep. Anyway, that's what he associated uh, his observations with having nothing to do with the alignment, the geometric alignment of the Earth, the sun, and the center of the Milky Way galaxy with, the, with, with its 11 million solar mass uh, black hole. I'm sorry, five million solar mass, okay? And that, to me, in the, in the HD model, is much more um, determinative, and there should be a whole bunch of experiments looking at that, and no one's looking at that because, again, no one's thinking of external or unknown fields. Right. They're associating this with a 3D effect somehow associated with the solar cycle being close to the sun or farther away, whatever. But the idea, the old idea from the 50s forward and Libby's discovery that radioactive decay rates are constant, it turns out they are not. Now, this has huge implications over millions of years because radioactive decay rates of everything from, you know, carbon-14 for biological systems, organic systems, which is only useful around 40,000 years, uh, to right. things like thorium or other, you know, <clears throat> plutonium, uranium, whatever, which are used to date, you know, granitic materials, geological eras, et cetera, et cetera. If none of those is really constant and the errors add over millions of years, that means a cornerstone of modern physics, which is measurement of the dating of, let's say, lunar samples brought back by the Apollo astronauts, it cannot work. Well, that throws everything into a cocked hat because it means at a fundamental level, looking at the universe and trying to measure when things occur, we basically know nothing. Yeah. Which is very it's humbling. Or it should be. smarter. <laughs> yeah. Well, until you get the right paradigm, until you understand what your observations are telling you. Remember, if you have the wrong model and you cram your data into the wrong model, you're going to get wrong answers. You know, garbage in, garbage out. The mainstream physicists who think they understand radioactive decay through the standard model and charms and quarks and all that, they're wrong. And it's observationally wrong and they don't understand how they're wrong. So the scaffolding of the house of cards, mixing our metaphors madly, that they have built on this idea of the immutability, the constancy of something as simple as radioactive change turns out not to be true. So don't feel bad that astrologers don't understand the physics of astrology yet because mainstream science doesn't understand the physics of radioactive decay. 
Yeah. No, I don't feel badly at all. I don't feel badly that I don't really know how an internal combustion engine works either, but I've driven one since I was 18 years old. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, so, so back to first principle. If we don't know yet how it works, how reliable is the statistics of, in terms of past history, past experience, past uh, events, it does work even if we don't know why. How good are it's we? Just, it's at, just as reliable as my car that when I put the key in the ignition these days, when I just sit there and touch the button, the car starts. I don't need, you don't need to know how something works in order for it to be useful. I'm not saying that we don't want to know. I'm just saying that one doesn't require the other. Well, I mean, that seems kind of like an extreme position. I would say it would be much more useful if we understood the how because then we could be more precise in the what. Like you said at the top of the show that this period, you know, 20, 20, 21, 22, whatever, has been looked at by astrologers as a period of really interesting change, but no one could tell us what the change was because the science is not there. The, the well, under- no, there, hold on. I mean, we can't say what the specifics are any more than a quantum, any more than a, um, microcosmic explorer, a, a, a particle physicist, can tell us where an electron is or where it's going because no one has ever seen an electron. What we see are clouds of electron possibilities. The point is, is that you have the same level of inaccuracy in the core of modern physics that has been um, scrutinized for a century now. Hmm. Okay, well, getting, you know, putting putting theory aside, what did astrologers, going back, and I would love to have seen some references, what did they say was going to happen in this 2021, 20, 22 time frame? Well, it actually goes back to 2020, because that's, I mean, the things that are happening in 2021 are part of a flow that was set up in 2020. Um, and, you know, whenever you're looking at any sort of cyclical event, you look at the um, previous uh, events tied to that same cycle. And that is easy to do, except if you have three or four cycles all occurring at the same moment, you can only look at the history of the separate cycles. And that's what makes this period of time so um, uh, so unusual or so uh, statistically improbable and therefore difficult to predict. So let me see if I understand this. If you have several cycles occurring simultaneously, but they're each of different periods, there will come a time when they all converge, they all coincide. Or at least of, at least more than one. Of more them. than they one. Yeah, not, but I'm, I'm thinking of the really yeah. uh, ultimate extreme where they all get together. And that yeah, the helped. Greeks had to work for that, and they said that it could never happen. But really, it probably can't. Yeah, but they were they were deeply into cycles. You know, Pythagoras and and you know uh, Plato and those guys. They they lived by sacred geometry, which is a frozen. No, it's form. true. But the idea of the Thema Mundi, which is the theme of the world, where each of the planets was in its sign that it was related to, all equally distantly placed from one another. Um, that 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 they. The hypothesis was that's the way it was when the universe was created, but it can never be that way again. But that's not true. We don't know that. If, well, if you run the clock long enough, anything can occur. 
Okay, okay, Doctor Google. I mean the real Google. <laughs> um, no, you're 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 right. However, as we know, there aren't just seven or nine or eleven things going around the sun. As I'm sure you know, NASA tracks over a half a million things that are orbiting around the sun, and so the mathematics become pretty extraordinary. Yeah, the question is, everything... which are really determinative and which are just noise. Well, that's a good question. I mean, it really is a good question, except physicists will claim that in right conditions, anything in the field impacts anything in the field. You know, so we, we don't it's, it's a it's a it's a valid question. And it's a question that astrologers um, spend time with, because there are astrologers who only use what we call the seven visible planets. And when I say planets, I include in the Greek concept of planeta, things that wander include the sun and the moon. Mm-hmm. And there are astrologers who only use the sun, moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, and don't use Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, Chiron, um, Nemesis, Curriculo, Eris, <laughs> and, and, a, and a list of other things that have now, or even things that were considered planets like Juno and Ceres when they were discovered, only to be demoted because there's 20,000 named asteroids. Where do you draw the line? I don't think anyone knows. Well, I would again beg to differ because in the work I've been trying to pursue, trying to match the hyperdimensional model with classical astrology, um, angular momentum seems to be one of the keys. I, I totally agree. And well, then you define for folks what angular momentum is. Well, it's it's actually based upon a Newtonian concept that he called um, tangential. Um, he, he called it tangential. Uh, I'm gonna get the right word. Um, uh, he called it inertial gra- gravity. It's the gravity of the of of the tangent where you have. Um, Pluto, for example, um, even though it's so far away from the sun, it has a tremendous tangential force. Because it's so far away from the sun. Exactly. In in the classic equations of planetary motion, it has extraordinary angular momentum, not because of its mass, because it's smaller than the moon, but because of its immense distance, 4 billion miles, give or take, from the sun on average, right? Correct. But there's another factor which I found, and that has to do with inclination. Because if everything is... It's something that astrologers look at, so... If everything's um, orbiting in the same plane, like an old-fashioned, you know, LP record, that's one thing. Well, not quite, but yes. But if you have some planets, like Pluto is tipped 17 degrees, give or take, that tilt, coupled with its great distance and thus great angular momentum in the gravity equation to keep it orbiting the sun, those two factors make Pluto very significant in charts and in angles and sextiles and quadratures and all that, far more than you would think this little speck out there in the dark should have under any reasonable association going back to the Sagan, you know, discounting of gravity as an effective astrological uh, understanding, right? Well, we know what Sagan's problem was. He didn't smoke enough weed. (laughs) No, Sagan had two roles. He wore a public hat and a private hat, and to stay in the club, the secret club, he had to wear the public hat and and, and, and decry certain things that privately 
he was, I mean, I wish he was still around because he would so love to grapple with the hyperdimensional model. I, I absolutely know he would, you know. Yeah. Anyway, the point is that gives Pluto this extraordinary, pun intended, leverage, um, you know, long moment arm leverage uh, in, mm-hmm. in astrological signs. But when you start throwing in like Chiron, which is a chunk of rock a few miles across, I'm sorry, I part company because Chiron as a angular momentum driver is nothing compared to Jupiter or Saturn. Well, that may be true, but I must say that um, between the two of us, only one of us has observed the actual of the angular radi- the, the uh, radial longitude you know, uh, created by Chiron uh, on other uh, planets in people's charts. And, um, and as much as I would like to agree with you, my experience leads me to say that that's not true. Okay. That, so. Chiron, that Chiron is immensely important. And, and, and I could give you uh, hundreds of instances of this, but it would take me about 20 minutes to put that together. <laughs> we only have a three-hour show. Okay. So yeah. we have encountered now in our discussion a factor which is a, apart from the standard hyperdimensional model which is driven by angular momentum and aspects because of, of geometry, which in turn, you know, modulates the waves because it's all really waves. You know, ultimately at some level, it's all waves, all frequencies. Exactly. Totally, totally agree with you. So a good scientific approach would say, okay, if Chiron has been so determinative, discovered post-discovery, were there charts where things were happening in people's lives or institutions or whole countries? You know, you can actually chart the birth of the United States with the sun and cancer and all that. And, you know, 1776 and whatever. Were there, were there, were there charts where things kept missing because there was an unknown X factor that then turned well, it out. might not have been obvious to the people then, but retrospectively, when you create those charts, for example, when you do the chart that's called the Sibley chart, because there are many people who actually use the Articles of Confederation as a birth chart of the United States, not the Declaration of Independence, the July 4th, 1776. Anyhow, when you look at that chart. Wait, 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 which actually occurred on July 2nd. See, there's a little um, wiggle room there. <clears throat> Well, no, the actual signing, um, I, I don't want to get into the history, but the actual signing, the last signature that, that, that ratified the De- uh, Declaration of Independence um, was at about 5 p.m. Um, and the, I, I can pull up the exact time, but I don't need to. It's not yeah, part of Yeah, but the agreement, right the now. consciousness agreement to do it was two days earlier, and nobody knows well, that. That. That, might, that. That might be the case. And if we're talking about consciousness and astrology, and we can't separate the two – that's why I've invited George on for the last hour. I would say it's the agreement among all those guys in that hot room in Philadelphia to finally, okay, this is it. The physical putting the document with a pen and quill and all that was secondary to the agreement at a consciousness level. Okay, this is it. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. Well, I, you know, it's going I, to be I, difficult tonight. Okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I still would say maybe, but regardless whether it was the second or the fourth, but the fact of the matter is that um, a couple of hundred years, 200 plus years 
of watching this chart, the chart of the what's called the Sibley chart of July 4th, actually works for timing to the important events of the United States. But the interesting thing is that the planet Uranus um, or the planet Neptune was and Pluto were not discovered until after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and they have profound impact on the chart, which leads us to believe that um, going back to Rene Descartes, who said that if we know all the variables, we can know everything, and then maybe we can never know all the variables. Mm. So that goes back to my question. Were there, prior to the discovery of Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, Chiron, were there holes in charts? Where and there still are. Yes, yes, and there still are. That's part of the indefiniteness, I think. See, part of the scientific mindset of Western traditional science is the power of prediction. You know, yes. I've said it many times. Science is nothing if it's not prediction. It would be so much better if there was someone in 17, you know, 1770 who said, wait a minute, there's something wrong here because it, it doesn't match. And then later we found out what was wrong. To do it in retrospect and go back and say, oh, well, that's because of Chiron or that's because of Neptune, that's almost like cheating because it, it's not the true predictive in the blind of the missing factor that you then discover. I hear what you're saying, but the discovery of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and the discovery of indeterminacy at the um, microscopic or um, you know, um, microcosmic level um, doesn't negate thousands of years of Gal or hundreds of years of Galilean or Newtonian mechanics. Mm, well, not really, because oh well, well, see, that gets to my second experiment I was going to talk to you about. <laughs> go, go for it. Well, physicists have been doing these quantum experiments, Heisenberg and all that, for decades and decades, right? Since the 1930s, which is when Heisenberg coined his famous uncertainty principle. Now, Nobel Prize for it. now, a few days ago, and I wish I had saved this and put it up for our discussion, there apparently is an experiment that some group has conducted with a major physical object, a sensible, you can hold in your hand object containing trillions of atoms, not little tiny you know, subatomic particles, but a real mass, a real thing that you could hold, and they've been able to put it into a quantum state for the first time, which is a stunning development. And I'm wondering if it would have been possible to always do this, given the right level of technology and money and time and, you know, effort, or is it happening now because now is when the physics in this grand processional cycle, which I think is one of the most important uh, hyperdimensional slash astrological cycles, when the physics of that is peaking now. So this experiment is only possible maybe every 26,000 years with a window of, you know. It's a good question. Do we have a good answer? Uh, no, but that question could be asked for other breakthroughs also. Uh, I mean, people have been messing around with tiny particles of carbon uh, um, since the invention of lasers, but it wasn't until the 70s that, you know, that carbon-60 was created, thought to be an absolutely new substance, and now it's common knowledge that it's everywhere. 
and is available in candle flames, carbon, you know, buckyballs, carbon uh, yeah. 60 can be gotten yeah. in a simple lighting of a candle. But again, was that always available to us or That's, did something happen that created something new in that moment that now it's commonplace? See, this is a crucial underlying question of all, I think, mainstream physics, because until the mainstream physicists adopt the hyperdimensional model, again, yeah. in this very narrow view of mine, all these questions are going to not have answers. They will all be like... They still don't understand why radioactive decay <clears throat> seems to change when yeah. previously it didn't. Now, part of that is because if you're measuring radioactive decay rates on an isotope which has a half-life of you know, 6,000 years, it takes very sensitive equipment to measure a fractional decay of a tiny percentage of you know, a given reservoir of atoms. So part yeah. of it has to do with, with sensitivity. But is another part <clears throat> due to the kind of, you know, knocking out from the underpinnings of science, the idea going back to something you said of reproducibility, because at certain times in our model, in the HD model, things can be reproduced. And then at so, other times yeah, so, they can't. No. It, yes. And what you're what you're really talking about here is something is a topic that was discussed in, I think, the most important book that Rupert Sheldrake um, ever wrote called The Presence of the Past, which has to do with, and as you may know, um, one of his famous lines is that universal laws aren't laws, they're habits, and therefore it can change. Well, he's um, actually made a list of experiments, dear Rupert, of all the things that are not constant that physicists have been no, assuming I know. I, I, are constant. But, but, but but in the book, The Presence of the Past, I know this is why I'm bringing it up, but in that book, he talks about certain things like um, like um, uh, chemist, uh, the, the material in developing film, like hypo, I think it's called. Right. Um, I don't know what the full chemical is. Um, it was unable, they were unable to crystallize it. And then someone did something and it began to crystallize. And now in, a, in, in the dark room, it's like a feat if you can get hypo not to crystallize. It was like it learned how to do it and somehow became part of the field in some moment. And now it does it. Wow. See, but hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guest yep. this morning is Rick Levine, one of the world's foremost astrologers. And to take us out, this is Judy Garland. Again, very appropriate, I do believe.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hudland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight for this Sunday night, June 20th, Father's Day. Rick Levine is with us, and uh, Georgia Lambert will be joining us in the next hour or so. So, Rick, let me return to the question I started with an hour ago. What was predicted for this time frame, and how specific or how fuzzy were the predictions? Among the things that came up, no, no, before I do that, let me just say the planets that were involved in what was kicked off in 2020 and now are coming to a, uh, a layer of critical, what's the right word, conflict in 2021 are the planets Saturn and Pluto, which from Earth's perspective, um, that, that cycle is about 32 to 38 years. It varies because the speed of Pluto varies so much, but about every, let's say about every 35 years, Saturn catches up to Pluto from Earth's point of view. And when you track that cycle back, it always conforms to Saturn, which is structure, status quo. And again, I'm giving you the party line the simple version of what the archetype Saturn means astrologically. Um, Saturn is the gatekeeper of reality. It's karma. It's three dimensions. Saturn is, 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 um, has to do with, with the laws of the land, the structures, the authority. It's the, the what is. It's a foundation, you say. Exactly. Mm. Pluto, as the lord of the underworld, Pluto is simply Latin for Hades, um, which is Greek for hell, the lord of the underworld, represents everything that's, that's not on the surface, everything that's unconscious, everything that the deep, passionate, powerful things that, that, are, that are down deep are under the um, archetype, uh, if you will, of Pluto. But Pluto has, is so slow moving. Um, most of us live through two or three cycles of Saturn being about 30 years. We typically get our first Saturn cycle at around age 29, second one at about age 58, and then third one at about 
um, um, uh, 80, um, about 87, 86, 87. But Pluto only goes around once every 250, 243 years. 248. Well, the, the, okay, 248. The number seems to vary um, year to year, but but 248 works for me. Um, as such, we don't ever get. We only get to experience a very small part of that cycle. No human can physically know what a Pluto cycle is like, and yet we all know what the moon cycle is like. We've been through so many new moon, full moons, new moon, full moons at the rate of 13 a year. So. Yeah, but wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on. But there are institutions created by human beings, by consciousness, that oh, have, lasted, have lasted huge numbers of Plutonian cycles. So if there's a pattern, if there's an underlying resonance. Well, there, 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 there is, but we're jumping to another topic. However, in one sentence, I can say part of what's going on now is that in 2021, 2022, the United States born whether it was July 2nd or 4th does not matter, <laughs> but Pluto, but Pluto is, is finishing its first, its cycle. first cycle. So, it, wow. so, so this year is, is, is the United States first Pluto birthday. Oh my God. Ding, 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 ding. Okay. That's, that, but that's one piece. And what you're saying is absolutely accurate. So I'm saying that to, to, to agree with you. Um, however, when it comes to the 32 to 38 year, cycle of the conjunction that's the line up from earth's point of view when saturn and pluto are in line on one side of the earth just so people have, just just so people get the the picture <clears throat> pluto's way out there moving very, out, very, miles. very very slowly saturn is much closer to the sun moving much faster and Correct. pluto is almost creeping along saturn is moving briskly along and what will happen is that in the time it takes Pluto to move a certain distance, Saturn will go around and then have to cover a little more of its orbit to line up again where it was 32 years before. So that's why you have the difference between the Saturnian year and the yeah. conjunction uh, synchronization, which takes a little longer because Pluto is not standing still. It's moving even if very, very Slowly. No, and what you said is is accurate, and it's the exact same phenomenon of why the moon returns to the same place it was every 27 days, but it's 28 and a half days before a new another new moon because mm -hmm. the sun has moved along in the moon the same way that you just described. The moon has to go one complete cycle and then catch up to the sun that's moved about 30 degrees around 30 days forward. Okay. Now, just one little housekeeping thing. This, yeah. These calculations all used to be done, like Werner von Braun built the Saturn V with a slide rule, by yeah. hand. Yeah. Now, of course, you have all kinds of really amazing, neat programs, Oh yeah. which I'm going to refer to later in the show when I unveil my surprises. Remember I said I had a couple surprises for you? Yep. And I'm going to want to inveigle you in to helping me solve huge mysteries using your software. So store that away, get back to the conjunctions of Saturn and Pluto. No, but what you just said, again, is way more important than anyone might realize because it was only in the last 20 years that astrologers could say, um, give me a printout of every time Saturn and Pluto lined up 
in the, either on the same side of Earth, like a new moon, or opposite one another, like like a full moon. Give me that printout for 2,000 years. Hit a button, and I can have that printout in about 40 seconds hmm. for 2,000 years. Isn't that cool? And I do. This is part of the work I do regularly in my in my teaching and my research. I'm constantly running cycles and going back. You know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to go a lot back to go back a lot further than 25, 2600 years because time becomes a little bit less accurate in, in our record keeping. However, I have multiple documents and spreadsheets of let's say just say, let's say the Saturn Pluto conjunction opposition cycle. And I can tell you that the, that, that within one, within one week of the exact alignment of Saturn and Pluto in 1914, the shots were fired that started World War I. Hmm. I can tell you that within one week of the Saturn-Pluto conjunction in 1947, that England granted um, India and Pakistan freedom, and we think that's so cool, but we forget that a half a million people were killed that year in battle skirmishes between the Muslims and the Hindus. Hmm. I can tell you that an astrologer I know wrote an article in April of 2001 for the Mountain of Astrologer in which he said that at the Saturn-Pluto opposition in the fall of 2001, it will be likely that we will see some terrorist attacks and some destruction. And interestingly enough, this article, which was published in May of 2001, it was a two, it was a three column article with the headline over three, over three columns. And the far left column from the bottom to the top was like a glassine um, uh, office building on fire in the middle with a what? phoenix coming out of it. Because, because Pluto is the sign of the phoenix. It's the sign of death and rebirth. Now, did he, temper, on September 11, 2001, there would be a terrorist attack in New York? He did not. But he had the symbolism, the mythology, and all the words wrapped around it. Incidentally, there is an astrologer who did make that prediction. But I don't think that one prediction actually proves anything. Those are anecdotal. Right. But he got the window right, right? Oh, yeah. But, but, but that same and, – and I'll tell you, the first time I wrote about the importance of the events of January setting up the time of about a year before after, and a year after, the events around mid-January – actually, I wrote January 12th, as every other astrologer in the world did. But I wrote an article in October of 2001, a month after – the um, September 11, because that was a Saturn-Pluto opposition. And I said, what we do now, in some ways, will come full circle. And by, by, 20, by January of 2020, there will be a sequence of events that will move us through another reshuffling of national boundaries and, you know, kind of like another round of, you know, coming to Jesus. Not that I want to bring Jesus into this discussion, but, okay. um, <laughs> but, but I did but I did not in all fairness say either pandemic or, uh, Oh, but, but, but when we talk about the, the issue of, um, you know, aside in 2020, aside from the pandemic, we had the coming into consciousness of the, um, you know, of the racial injustice, which really never went away, but all of a sudden was in our face in a major, major, major way. And we look at 
that same Saturn-Pluto conjunction was active during the Civil War. It was active um, uh, 30 years before the Civil War when, the, when England um, outlawed slavery through the British Empire. That was the previous cycle. That same cycle was actually um, within a degree of being exact at the signing of the Civil Rights Act in 1965, I think. Maybe 66. Mm-hmm. I might be off the year here. 64. 64. 64, thank you. Um, And so we see the same types of issues coming up again and again and again. But here's the problem. The problem is that Saturn and Pluto line up every, let's say, every 35, 40 years, 32 to 38 years. But it does it in different places in the sky, different signs, and it does it with different planets that are either – um, forming different angles, different planetary resonances to mm-hmm. that particular angle. However, in astrology, every planet is most vibrant in its home sign. This comes down to us from the Greeks. Where does it come from? No one knows. We just know it works. Saturn is at home in the sign of Capricorn. Um, um, Venus is at home. Hang in on, the hang sign. on. And Capricorn is toward the center of the Milky Way galaxy. It, that it is. It's actually – it's toward the center. The center would actually be closer, at least in our tropical zodiac system, at about 29 degrees of Sagittarius, but right. Anyhow. Um, I wonder if it's 19.5. Hmm. Because angles apart from alignments, 180, 90, are also important in the physics. Oh, yeah, and they are in astrology too. Okay, but let me just finish this one point here because Saturn is is stronger when it's in when it's in Capricorn than in any other sign. That's its home sign. Just like um, Jupiter is stronger in Sagittarius. So wait, let, 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 let's go back and not run over this too fast. You're saying that from the Greeks we have determinative positioning of like you know, home base for each of the known visible planets. Correct. It's and, called the domicile. And that has come down to us as a heritage, but nobody's explained what has linked a particular planet constellation oh, there are on books, the Zodiac. There are books. No, there, there, there are multiple books that I've read and probably more than I know um, about what um, what is called the Thema Mundi, the, the relationship between the natural planet and the vibration of the signs. And again, that's outside of our realm of discussion right now. My point here is that although Saturn and Pluto line up every, like clockwork, um, every 32 to 38 years, and that often they do it within a year of major pandemics, like Black Death in 13, um, I can, I'll tell you the date in just a moment, um, <laughs> but there was a Saturn-Pluto conjunction the, in the center of, of that period of time. Um, but, but more importantly, where I'm, where I'm going with all of this um, is, by, by the way, the Black Death um, was actually... Um, in 1345, 1350, and the actual Saturn-Pluto conjunction, I think, was in 1351. Um, This is the bubonic plague, right, carried by rats? Yeah, yeah, I'm talking about – and that that occurred 
very regularly and the outbreaks in Western Europe and in China, like clockwork, match this Saturn-Pluto cycle. However, what we call Black Death, the bubonic plague at its worst, um, you know, was in that mid-14th century, um, killing about 5,000 people a day. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, but what I'm looking at right now is the Saturn-Pluto conjunction that occurred in Capricorn in January of 2020. And because Saturn takes about 30 years to go around, the last time that Saturn, that Saturn lined up with Pluto, because Pluto takes almost uh, 250 years to go around, the last time Saturn lined up with Pluto while Saturn was in Capricorn mm-hmm. was within 30 days, uh, within, 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 within um, a month and a half of Martin Luther's Protestant, you know, the beginning of the Reformation. Oh. That was the previous hmm. time. In other words, there, there, there's a Saturn-Pluto conjunction three times a century. However, the last time that occurred in Saturn's home sign was in um, uh, 13, 15, 13 um, it, it was in, uh, I, don't, I don't have the number at the top of my yeah, head. Yeah, but you see, there. Rick, all right, while you're looking for the number, if you want to, let me ask this question. I got, I got it. Thir, thir, 13, oh, no, 13, 47 to 1351 was bubonic plague. I got sidetracked there. Right, right. Sorry. Okay. Martin Luther, Martin Luther also at a Saturn Pluto um, was, you know, basically um, in. Um, but see, in, this is one of the major Achilles heels of astrology in the view of, you know, very narrow minded people, which is, okay, on the one hand, you're talking about a medical catastrophe, bubonic plague. And on the other hand, you're talking about a, religious consciousness enlightenment, a whole turnover of a paradigm of the Catholic Church versus Protestantism. What's the damn connection? In other words, well, here's, you, here's the hang damn on, hang on, let me finish the question. If you're looking at interesting events in history, there's history is No, studied. I'm not. I'm looking at things that have a very specific connection. Well, then tell us the connection. That's what I'm looking for. The connection for. is Saturn is boundaries and Pluto is the d- decay and destruction of those boundaries and a readjustment to the new condition. And whether it's a medical condition where a virus is in So fact, we're talking it, about institutional shattering paradigm breaking? Yeah. yeah. And in fact, that Saturn-Pluto conjunction cycle is also incredibly timed to the um, to the Galilean Copern- Copernican Galileo- Galilean um, shift of the Earth from the uh, uh, geocentric from the heliocentric to the geocentric. Um, in fact, Copernicus. You mean was the other born, way around? Um, right. Thank you. You're Copernicus was born with Saturn and Pluto 90 degrees to one another, and and the book on the revolution of the spheres was published and brought to his deathbed on the Saturn, um, Saturn in a 90-degree angle to Pluto on his deathbed. So <clears throat> let me recapitulate And again, here. this doesn't prove anything. It's still about a readjustment. In fact, Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake on a Saturn-Pluto conjunction. It's just about boundaries. They're often national. They're often religious, but they can be physical. Okay, so <clears throat> you're saying there's a pattern here that every Pluto-Saturn conjunction in 
Capricorn. And or opposition. Or I was going to ask about the opposition. Yeah. So it's either a zero degree alignment or 180. And, you, and in fact, even the 90 degrees, although they seem a little bit less consistent, the 90 degrees play in also. Okay. Well, that, that's totally you know consistent with the hyperdimensional model. Yeah. The thing and is, fact, you're saying and in hang fact, on, hang on, hang on, hang on, 45 and 135 degrees. When you have two excited people talking, sometimes nothing ever happens. If we, if, 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 if we're looking at major paradigmical revolution, fundamental revolutionary things that change centuries of subsequent history, you're saying you can chart those with Saturn-Pluto conjunctions or oppositions almost like Newtonian clockwork, right? I am saying that, but but I would say that it's not like Newtonian clockwork because sometimes these lineups occur and nothing seems to happen, and other times something happens on a different lineup. So there's, I mean, that's the truth of the matter. I could I could make a case and say, just answer your question, yes, but it's not like Newtonian mechanic well, where a billiard ball hitting that billiard ball with that velocity and that angular right. momentum okay. will end up with the ball going there every time. So let's go back to the window model. Yeah. Is, is there a window of probability covering a given opposition or conjunction that something fundamental will change resonant with this Saturn-Pluto cycle? Uh, yes, and I think it's kind of like a bell curve. Um, some of the research, one of the great researchers in this area um, is a guy named Richard Tarnas, who wrote an encyclopedic book called uh, Cosmos and Psyche, where it's not an astrology book. It's really about exploring a paradigm where historical events somehow can be correlated with uh, low frequency, slow moving planets. Oh, cool. Um, and it's a brilliant book. I mean, it's an, but it's encyclopedic. This guy's a real academic, and it's a it, it's a, not a light read. Can you Anyhow, can you provide Kinsia with a link so we can put it up in your section of Radio with Pictures? Yeah, just uh, Google Rick Tarnas, Richard Tarnas. But sure, I I can provide her with a link. Thanks. Cosmos and Psyche. It, it it I mean, it's a it's a book that shook academia because Rick Tarnas's previous book. Um, um, Joseph Campbell called the best single intellectual history of the West. Oh, this really? Is a guy with real credentials. Oh, Campbell was no slouch, obviously. Right, hmm. and he called Rick Tarnas's book, um, um, which, which which was his his first book called Passion of the Western Mind, was that same history but with no astrology in it. And then 25 years later, he wrote the same book again, but with the astrology interweaved, not as an astrology book but as an exploration of what the hell is this cosmology really all about? The, the, the basic pattern matching model. Exactly. Okay. So what did Tarnas find? Well, he, he found that in the slowest moving planetary cycles, which would be Saturn, well, the slowest one would be of the known planets would be Neptune to Pluto, which lines up, every 400 years wow. um but 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 the fact is that in any of these slower moving um cycles um what what he discovered hang on a second my my computer is going to die because I, it got unplugged we don't want that to happen no that Just would be bad on here one second okay what 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 he discovered in not only the the neptune pluto 
but the Uranus, Neptune, Uranus, Pluto, and then the Saturn with those was that you had to allow about six to 10 years on either side of the exact to see the full movement of whatever the events were that typically occurred much closer within a year either side. Hmm. So there's a time lag. Yes, I call it like the lag of seasons. Um, in other words, as you know, the lag of seasons is because of that water takes longer to cool off or heat or, or heat up. That the today is the most light on the planet, but the hottest day is not really typically until August. Yeah, because of the thermal lag of the oceans. Lag, they called the lag of seasons. Well, in these historic events, often we have the same lag where it takes time for one event to actually precipitate others to then create a larger scenario. Now, granted, World War I was started within a few days of the Saturn-Pluto um, conjunction. Um, and, and, um, and interestingly enough, the obvious event isn't always the one that becomes the most important because at that Saturn-Pluto conjunction in 1914, Lawrence of Arabia got all the Arab countries to fight on the side of the allies, promising them freedom from the Turks, you know, yep. and that's really what set up the division of the planet of, of those countries after World War One. When, when Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini came to power um, in 1931, that was the Saturn-Pluto opposition. And then in 1947, at the next conjunction, not only did, did India get granted freedom, but Palestine got taken off the map and Israel got formed along with the United Nations all within a year of either side of the conjunction. So the, we see these events. And then the um, 1982 when we had the Israel invasion of Lebanon, that was the Saturn-Pluto opposition again. And then, of course, in 2001 was the next conjunction, and we know what happened there. So is this because of just the uncountable Heisenberg noise in the system, or are there other factors like other alignments, other, you know, Sextiles, yeah, there, there are whatever. always other alignments that have impact, and that's, then, that's what makes astrology uh, so, uh, what's the right word? Unscientific, because there's never there's, <laughs> frustrating. There's no way to frustrating is the word I would use. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, look, in, in 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 mainstream physics, there's always a fudge factor. There's always yeah. noise in the system. You know, the sure. The, sure. The, the intent of experiments is to drive down the noise. I mean, look exactly. at the incredible lengths which physicists have gone to to measure gravitational waves by burying, you know, miles long laser beams in vacuum tunnels, you know, underground, uh, shielding from earthquakes and traffic noise and, you know, nope. wind and all that stuff. In other words, in any science, you've got signal and noise. The problem with astrology is there appears to be a lot of noise compared to the signal. And sometimes the noise can overwhelm. So what does that tell us? That we That's don't... right. The signal-noise ratio is difficult to manage in reality in a laboratory or in a controlled situation. It's a different story. You're absolutely right. Hmm. Well, there's all kinds of sciences, social sciences, that try to do science, you know, based in the field. And we're running yeah. into a bottom-of-the-hour break here. So yeah. let, let me leave you with this. What is the plans for current generation of astrologers to refine the model? 
to exclude the noise, to amplify the signal and figure out what is determinative and what's merely there because it's there? It's a good question, and I don't know if I could answer well, that. Well, you, you've got two or three minutes to think about it because we're coming down to the bottom of the hour. So let's do this. Let's pause. My guest of the hour is uh, Rick Levine, one of the world's foremost astrologers, who thankfully, for me anyway, is open to the idea of hyper-dimensional physics as somehow part of understanding how the universe, how the field, how the background, how the matrix in which consciousness, which of course is the means by which any of this takes place, occurs, moves individuals, moves populations, moves politics, moves entire societies to do things there when they do do them over there. What is astrology really? It's the benchmark of reality in three dimensions itself. And maybe toward the end of this program, we'll have a new angle on what causing that reality. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we've done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. 
I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. When I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Oakland, over and out. And welcome back, everyone. Sunday night, June 20th, Father's Day and the solstice. Gosh, that should make for an interesting combination. Well, my guest tonight, my first guest, uh, we're going to be joined by Georgia in about half an hour. What we're discussing is nothing less than the foundations of reality itself. One of the incredible yearnings of human beings down through, you know, thousands of years, down through all of recorded history, and obviously from the time the consciousness first was born, is how can we anticipate, how can we predict, how can we know what is to come? Aside from people who have abilities of precognition, of which there is significant evidence that that ability actually exists, the only way that I have found that one can reliably depend on at least in terms of long-term cycles and trends and these paradigm-shattering punctuations of human history, is astrology. And I've been thinking for many, many years now, ever since uh, I realized there might be a physical mechanism that really underscores and understands and explains this connection between Earth and the planets and the stars, and they're changing configurations. The only thing that seems to work is some kind of astrology, some kind of mathematical mapping of the movements and relationships and angles between the celestial denizens we see overhead and what occurs on Earth itself. And that's what we're discussing tonight in terms of things to come. Rick, you're back. Okay, so um, these paradigm-shattering events, you say that the alignment, the conjunction... Now, when does the Pluto-Saturn current conjunction occur, or has it already occurred? It, it occurred on the same day that the first reported mortality from COVID and the genome was announced on January 12, 2020. That was the day of the exact conjunction. But as we know, these planets move very slowly. And on top of that, like I said, this was a confluence. It still is uh, more complicated than just that because Jupiter, which is a 12-year cycle, also was in that mix on and off throughout all of 2020. And Jupiter catches up to Saturn every 20 years. Matter of fact, what we call the decade in our calendar is a Jupiter-Saturn conjunction opposition cycle. 
Jupiter and Saturn from Earth's point of view were, were in conjunct, were aligned um, in 1900, 1920, 1940, 1960, 2000, actually 2001, but then settled back to, to 2020. Now, and that means they were in opposition in the odd decades. And that Jupiter-Saturn conjunction occurred also in 2020, and that had its own special technical thing that made it a one in five, one in 450 year conjunction, which I, I don't want to dig into the technicality of that, but we're talking here a confluence of the every 32 to 38 year Saturn Pluto, which was exact, you know, in January of 2020. And then the every 20 year Saturn, um, Jupiter Saturn, which was exact on and off three times well, and its connection also to Pluto, which was on and off during 2020. Interestingly enough, hitting the three peak date, dates of COVID mortality, that was Jupiter aligning with Pluto. But now in 2021, the dynamics have shifted and we're into a next phase. But this in itself is another pattern, which is about a 45-year cycle. And we're at the halfway point of that cycle and um, and this is this is this involves again Saturn, the planet of structure, stability, status quo, and it's making a 90 degree angle or square to Uranus, which is the Promethean planet. It's the futuristic, it's the radical, it's the rebellious, it's the progressive, and in many ways, 2021 astrologically has the theme of the old versus the new or the conservative versus the progressive um, or the one belief system that is based on science versus one that is based upon something new and different. That same theme comes across again and again and again. And that cycle has its own um, history that I could trace back a hundred years with, you know, that, that actually um, Saturn and Uranus were in exact opposition from uh, 1918 to 1920, which was the Spanish flu pandemic tied. I mean, it was also the women's right to vote. It was also the Russian revolution. It was also the end and the armistice of World War One. And, and this cycle is intertwining with the other one that we just talked about. Um, but the Saturn Uranus uh, square that occurred in February of 1930 was basically tied astrologically to the Wall Street crash, the Great Depression that led to the New Deal, and it was also the rise of mass fascism. But remember, in the middle of that, or toward the end of it, in 1931, we had a Saturn-Pluto opposition. So these two cycles can actually, you know, kind of go back and forth with one another. The same thing happened in the mid-60s, 65 to 67, where we had Saturn opposing Uranus, but we also had um, Uranus lining up with Pluto, and that only occurs every other century. So we see these mixes of things, but all of that brings us to 2020-2021, where we had this confluence of several different cycles all coming together, all having peculiar things about the cycle this time that made it anomalous compared to other cycles, and anyone who says they know what's going on, including an astrologer, um, doesn't. Well... Again, it kind of reminds me of that line in Independence Day <clears throat> where the Secretary of Defense says, well, Mr. President, that's not exactly correct. Yeah. Remember that great line? Okay, yeah. let me tell you why I think you're, you're 
you know, what you just said that no one could predict what's exactly going to happen <clears throat> may not be exactly correct. Within a few days, by the end of this week, by Friday on the 25th, there is supposed to be an official report out of the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, on spurred on by various events in the U.S. Navy, DOD, you know, yep. unusual things seen, you know, hovering around uh, aircraft battle groups, et cetera, et cetera, that's going to become yep. public as a precursor to public congressional hearings as the trend curve seems to go. And yep. it all focuses around something which I think is probably the biggest single consciousness paradigm shift since Copernicus, which is going to be the ultimate step-by-step, relentless, absolutely by the skin of their teeth against every instinct, ultimate grudging admission that the human race, humanity on earth, is not alone. It's going to take us a while to get there. We're going to go through various side canyons and distractions and all that. But the bottom line is, once you have legitimized at the level of the federal government, the three branches, executive, you know, legislative and judicial, the idea that there's something running around in our skies, which is not homegrown, not from Iran, not from China, not from Russia, you are driven inexorably given that there is a now um, momentum to find out what it is to the reality that it's not from here. It's from out there. It's from some other extraterrestrial consciousness. So when that is announced, when that process is set in motion, which could occur in as little as five days, I think it's going to be more like a couple of weeks, but let's just say within the next, you know, week or two, that is going to mark such an extraordinary shifting point in human consciousness and history that it's almost, I would say it's probably even at a greater level than the dethroning of the earth from the center of everything. Uh, Pernicus, question, does astrology predict some huge paradigmical event in this time frame or would you say that the saturn pluto conjunction uh january of a year ago 2020 is part of the cascade resulting in this ultimate inevitability and the fundamental paradigm shift we've been all discussing for many many months now this was an easy one it would be b (laughs) in other words yes the Saturn-Pluto conjunction of, of 2020 was part of a cascade that involved then Jupiter and Pluto and then uh, Jupiter and Saturn and now Saturn and Uranus. And this entire thing combined with probably many other variables, including where we are technologically and who knows what else, that this is indicating a very large paradigmatic shift that um, on some levels, um, I mean, we in our in modern times, we can't even imagine what what um, Martin Luther and the nailing of the 
you know, theses on the wall in 15, 15, 16, 15, 17, what that could have even been, because there was nothing that could have ever, ever, ever precedented the idea that Rome would not be absolute power, you know, in religion. And I think that that in some ways, what you're talking about is actually part of a cascade that will involve many things. And I wouldn't be surprised if that at all um, uh, that that is part of it. Richard, when when did NASA first release the face on Mars um, photograph? July 25th, 1976. So that was actually um, right smack in the middle of the last time that Saturn, the planet of the status quo, was squaring Uranus, the planet of radical and revolutionary change. I have that, two. That, well, I have two questions. One is, you know, we get the Saturn status quo thing from the Greeks, right? That's been handed down. Yes. Okay. And the same. Where do we get Uranus? Where do from? I was going to get? Where do we get Uranus being, you know, consciousness, visions, of whatever? Well, no. Uranus. Uranus is basically. Um, the Promethean planet of stealing technology from the gods. It's futuristic. Uranus, when Uranus was discovered, it was like a shock being delivered to the system because because Saturn was the was the limit. And then all of a sudden, Uranus basically tripled the real estate of the local little system we live right. in. And and so Uranus is the planet of shock, and it is electrical. Uranus Uranus is like lightning, where it basically says Saturn's walls, I don't give a crap, lightning strikes, kapow, and now the, it's like it's like a new something new. And so where does that come from? It comes from a couple of hundred years of observation by astrologers, period. Okay, so in 76, <clears throat> the summer that the face on Mars was announced, you're saying that Saturn and Uranus were at 90 degrees, right? I, I that, that, that actually, that a square occurred because of um, retrograde motion, it occurred five times from October of 75 to April of 77, five times. Oh. And, so that, and so that was right in the middle. Boy, talk and about one bite of the apple not being true. <laughs> you know, if you don't get it, it, talk about one bite of the apple not being true. If you didn't get it once, you'll get it again and again and That's again. That's very true. But, but, but what you just said was very funny because you – because I was trying to interrupt you by saying that was also the year that Microsoft and Apple computer were formed. Oh, how interesting. Okay, now, yeah. we know in the physics you modeled that 90 degrees yep. and alignments and 180 are really important for bringing things from hyperdimensions down to the 3D reality. Uh, and I would that, – that, that's – Basically, for me, axiom one of all of my astrology teaching is things appear through the real world dimension into into the three dimensional reality um, by virtue of Saturn, which the symbol of Saturn is a 90 degree angle is a cross with a little sign curve on the bottom. But things come into reality through Saturn and 90 degree angles. And when I say 90 degree angles, I mean, zero, 90, 180. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I can I, I can I can hear Georgia jumping up and down with uh, agreement. Anyway, and we'll get to her in about uh, ten minutes. Um, big question on this model of these resonances and these patterns. What else astrologically is going to happen between now and the end of this year, 
or now in the end of 2022, the election of 2022, which is going to be incredibly important, hugely important, notwithstanding, yep. what's going to happen that we can look at? If we can't tell what is going to happen, at least we can say this is the window when something really amazing has a chance right, of so, taking place. So, 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 so here's the deal. This, this current Saturn-Uranus square, because of those retrograde movements, um, occur three times. The first of the three times was mid-February. We're talking 2021. Mm-hmm. The second time was June 14th. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Mid, Mid-February? Yes. That's when Perseverance landed on Mars. Yes, it's true. And we discovered a whole bunch of weird stuff, including one of my major mysteries that I'm saving for when Georgia can join us. Perfect. So that was the actual exact date was on February 17th. Oh, we landed on the 18th. Yeah, yep. And and during that period of time, not only was Saturn squaring Uranus, but the moon – was on that day exactly conjoined, lined up with Uranus. Therefore, the moon was also squaring Saturn. And on top of that, there was five planets in Aquarius, Saturn, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, and the sun. And so that was the first of three Saturn square Uranuses. The second one was just last week. It was on June 14th. And that right now is still within less than a half a degree of being exact which in astrology is certainly close enough, even within a degree or two, well, to look, catch other ma- presidents. Mainstream astronomers, if they can you know, triangulate through, through a parallax <clears throat> the distance to a star within 5%, they, yeah, oh no, yeah, yeah. they think they've but, nailed it. These the tolerances third, are much smaller, much tighter. Yep. But the third and final of these three exact ah. squares is on Christmas Eve Eve. Oh, good. That's my new holiday. It's December oh. 23rd. <laughs> oh, my God. Now, and, and what happens, though, in 2022, the planets, because of retrograde motion, come back to within a half a degree of being exactly square again by, by September, October of 2022. But the actual perfection, the, the zero tolerance, exact ones are on February 17th, June 14th, and December 23rd. So we're in the middle. We're in the middle of this year of Saturn, the old, having to answer to Uranus, the new. Saturn, the conservative, the party line, the authority, having to answer to Prometheus technology, uh, the fire from the gods, if you will, coming down and lightning striking and changing everything. That's the imagery. Hmm. Which I think can be very, very nicely correlated with what we know is going to occur. Yep. And it will be like an H-bomb to a candle. You know, anybody who thinks they're controlling, I've seen all kinds of blogs, oh, it's going to be a psyops, the government's going to try to manipulate, you know, us into some kind of interplanetary war, all of this crap. It is not controllable. I think this is at the level of Copernicus uh, or bigger Because once this door is opened, once humanity reconnects with its heritage, who it really is, who's out there, whose friends, whose foe, whose family, I mean, nothing is going to be the same. And as I kind of themed this show tonight, we're already seeing all kinds of real world signs that people are 
different. They're looking for something different. It's like, you know, this, this ancient New Yorker cartoon where this guy crawling across the desert and he's croaking ammonia, ammonia. It's an alien, okay? <laughs> this is going to be falling into such fertile ground and such incredibly receptive consciousness that anybody who thinks they can control this or mandate the propaganda or the, you know, the, the, the accepted picture or the within-the-lines drawing, they better rethink their, their model very quickly because it will not be controllable. What I'd like to know is can astrology give us any indication of how far up it can go? Um, I, I, I don't think so. I, I don't know, but I don't think so. But as you talked, it reminded me that anyone who's well-versed in hypnotism knows that there's two ways to induce a hypnotic trance. Uh, and they're often referred to by hypnotists as mother and father method. The mother method is very soft and soothing. You know, close your eyes. You're going to fall asleep. Listen to Okay. Mm -hmm. The other method, which is what stage hypnotists use, is basically rapid alternative realities being thrown at you so that you're in a state of hyper confusion until all of a sudden something is thrown out as a stable datum and the, and the consciousness grabs it as if it is absolutely the only thing that exists. And I think we're there. Hmm. Can you be a smidge more specific? Um, no, just, well, just that this coming on the tail end of, of, of such a high level of confusion over 2020 and what's real and and does this work is the vaccine going to kill you or is the virus going to kill you who won the election is the election i mean there's so many different things we could list probably a half a dozen pretty easily where um, where people are saying this is real no that's real no that's not real this is real and so i think that the entire culture is in maybe the planet even is in this state of hyper confusion and ready to fix on something that everyone can agree on whether they want to or not. Hmm. What do you think will be the driver that, that coalesces kind of like a super fluidity, you know, the old example of you yeah. can, you can freeze water down below 32 degrees Fahrenheit below zero centigrade. And if it's really pure water, it will remain liquid. And if you drop, let's say you can bring them like five degrees below zero or 10 degrees, and then you drop one little impurity, like a, like a, like a little particle of dust into it, and it freezes instantly. The whole thing. It's like, like Kurt Vonnegut gets ice nine. Exactly. <laughs> or there's, yeah. a, there's a great line from Brian Aldiss's uh, Haliconia um, uh, Winter, which does the same thing. Anyway, the point is, I'm seeing socially, consciously, politically, that scenario where all the prerequisites are, are there. They just haven't congealed yet. They just haven't coalesced. They haven't, you know, kind of can reconfigure themselves around a new, this is reality for most of everybody. And I'm looking for what is going to trigger that super cooling transition. Got any ideas? So my, my answer is I don't know, but my answer also is tempered by the fact that what you're saying and what's happening with this whole disclosure piece certainly plays into this as an interesting possibility. That's all. Well, is there anything bigger in the barnyard, anything you know, larger on the runway? 
Well, I would say that there's probably a half a dozen things that are pretty large on the runway, and and you can't really talk about any of them without creating immediate polarity, you know, whether it's pandemic or politics or, um, you know, futurism of one side, hyper, I'm sorry, um, uh, post-humanism, transhumanism. There are so many things right now that have us on edge of not knowing, um, and and resolution to any of them would be interesting, but I don't think they would compare um, with what you're talking about. The idea that we're not alone and that humanity is incredibly ancient and we have cousins and uncles and aunts out there and we have a whole yeah, history. Well, no, it's, like, it's like anybody who is surprised that after a year and a half or yeah, after a year and a half that people are now discussing maybe this virus really did come from the coronavirus lab in Wuhan, that, that anyone who, who, who it took a year or a year and a half for them to think that is either really stupid or drank the Kool-Aid of society. And I think that there's the same thing. There's a lot of people who knew from the beginning that that was obviously what was going on. And I would say the same thing is true and has been growing, as I know you know way better than I do, by leaps and bounds for decades and maybe even more so in these past few um, past few months or so. Um, and that is the awareness that we're not alone. I mean, who's going to really be surprised other than, you know, some fundamentalist in Mississippi? I probably just offended someone. I didn't mean to. <laughs> well, you know, there is the alternate alternate model, which is, <clears throat> I guess, shared between me and Chandra Rikrama Singh, which is that this stuff came from outer space and that Wuhan, China was the target where the deliberate victims, because they got out of line with their unholy relationship to the breakaways uh, out there in the solar system. And that's a long discussion. And as retribution, they were slapped down hard. And because of the whole face saving part of the culture, they have now deflected that, that uh, attack into where they didn't tell anybody the truth about anything and therefore compounded the problem, you know, a thousand fold. If they'd fessed up to what had happened, we could have stopped this thing much sooner than it was stopped. That's an alternative to the alternative. And again, I. Yeah, I, your, your, your story is better than mine. And we have some data. Anyway, we are at the uh, top of the hour. My guest this morning is Rick Levine. We're going to be joined very shortly by Georgia Lambert. And we're going to be talking at the next level of this very interesting conversation of things to come. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. If you touch that dial now, you're going to miss two stunning pieces of data on the coming paradigm shift that seems to be in the making. We shall return. side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand 
liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. It is now Sunday night, Monday morning here in the Land of Enchantment, June 21st, Solstice, Father's Day, and we have been joined by Georgia Lambert. Let me make sure. Georgia, are you there? Okay, let me turn up your gain a little bit and turn this down. And Rick is still with us. You're there, right? Rick Levine. Uh, my microphone was muted of out of course. politeness. I am here. Georgia, we have to stop meeting like this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think this is maybe the fourth or fifth time that, I, that I've got to hang out with Georgia, but the only time we've ever talked or met, I believe, has been with you present. Richard. Well, I could just kind of <laughs> go away. <laughs> I'm not asking you to. I was just noting it. <laughs> Georgia, I hope, I presume that you may have been able to listen to some of the show, right? I've, I've been listening intentively for the last 40 minutes, and I would like to throw in my two cents Absolutely. here. Absolutely. That's what I want to ask. What do you think? Where are we? What's going on? Well... Um, you know how you're always talking about wheels within wheels within wheels, mm-hmm. and there are cycles within cycles within cycles. Um, we know that there are on the world stage right now and in humanity's consciousness echoes of things that happened in the 60s, echoes of things that happened in the Civil War, echoes of things that happened in World War II, and the big one is things that went all the way back to, yes, here it comes, the dreaded A-word, Atlantis. Mm. And this particular cycle, again, this is the esoteric model. Um, 
it, it details too much to go into, but the model is that during the Atlantean period, uh, there were, you know, the, the program Ancient Aliens talks about the time when the gods walked with humanity. Well, the esoteric model is that during the Atlantean period, the mysteries were open and there were temple schools that were manned by a spiritual hierarchy that was, in a sense, humanity's elder brother. And because of what happened during the Atlantean period, Earth was kind of put on a, on a sort of timeout or quarantine that is now coming to a close. We are nosing into a cycle where that's coming to a close. And the spiritual hierarchy is going to reemerge. In the 1930s, uh, there was a Tibetan master that wrote about this cycle that happens every hundred years where the spiritual hierarchy of our planet uh, has a conclave that decides the things to be unfolded in the next hundred years. The next one is due to happen in 2025. And back in the 30s, it was said that the details to be discussed at this conclave were how the externalization is going to take place, the reemergence of the spiritual hierarchy, which was called in the Middle Ages the Invisible College, which during the Atlantean days, the esoteric model is that we borrowed this spiritual hierarchy because humanity wasn't that advanced. We borrowed it from our sister planet, the, the Venusian scheme. This is in the esoteric model. Today, mm. this, today, the spiritual hierarchy has been, most of, the, most of the positions have been filled by Earth's humanity that have made it with a few exceptions. But the point is that the spiritual hierarchy connects us to the bigger family out there. And in 2025, the details of how that's going to be unfolded uh, and that externalization or reemergence is going to take place will be discussed. What I think is a couple of things. I think that we're in this ratcheting up period up to 2025 where the old forces that want to keep things the same, that want to keep the power base the same, are going to get stronger and stronger because they're basically fighting for their life. They're fighting for their survival. Um, and so we're going to see more unrest. However, um, we've got an amazing opportunity for humanity to make a huge leap. Will this be smooth? Probably not. Because since the Atlantean period, humanity has thought of itself as top dog in the universe. And when it comes into juxtaposition with levels of consciousness that may be more spiritually advanced than itself, that's going to be a psychological reckoning, which will be very interesting to see how that unfolds. Mm. <clears throat> so you think this is going to play out over the next several years as opposed to coming to a head in a shorter period of time? I think that this next full moon, which is on the 24th, uh, oh, which that's, is... That's clever. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I thought you'd be amused with that. Um, Which is in opposition, that, folks. Remember the alignment thingy. It's opposite the sun. Exactly. Do you know, you know, uh, earlier you were making um, the uh, uh, example of, you know, the mathematics of billiards and things like that. Mm-hmm. But there can be other factors. You know, if there's a huge ginormous wind blowing across the billiard table that's going to affect things so whatever comes out on the 24th from this semi-disclosure or whatever it's going to be um, how much is revealed is is going to affect this ratcheting up period till 2025 and and you know this cycle that we're nosing into so how it's going to play out depends on how much is revealed, the way it's revealed. Um, you know, humanity's been well prepared with uh, the media and entertainment, you know, since the 1960s with Star Trek. So it'll be, it'll be a fun game that we're all going to be observing and playing in. Wow. Okay, um, going back to the idea that we're in some kind of quarantine, because that's going to be part of what I'm going to talk about in a little while. We've got new data indicating the quarantine from a most extraordinary source. And some people may have been following this, some people may not. Uh, If you haven't, you're going to want to hang around. If you have, you're going to want to hear it again, because the more I think about it, the more permutations of this new data impinging on the idea that we were somehow in the past separated from the rest of, if not the universe, the rest of dimensions by some event, by something, by some physics. That's actually now in the data. It's in the cards, and I'm going to lay this out in the next uh, hour or so. Don't everybody speak at once. Well, that sounds fun. <laughs> Rick? Yeah. What are your thoughts on what uh, what uh, uh, Georgia just said? Well, I have to admit that I do not have as much uh, contact or knowledge of what she's speaking of specifically. However, I can tell you that in 2025, the things that were the absolute most tense during 2020 2021 and even into the beginning of 2022 that Saturn instead of being aligned with Pluto conjoined Pluto Saturn instead of being square to Uranus Saturn will now be at the exact middle point between a Uranus Pluto trine trines one third of a circle that's harmonious rather than inharmonious if you will and not only will Saturn be one-sixth of a circle sextile to Pluto on one side and Uranus on the other um, Saturn will be joined at that spot by Neptune which again propels this into a this isn't just another year this is extraordinary but it's extraordinary from a whole different perspective and it has to do with uh, with, with reestablishing equilibrium and harmony rather than conflict well, now that's interesting because that's in direct conflict with what uh, Georgia was just saying. Not necessarily. No, no, it's not. Okay, because, I'm always glad you, to be Georgia. refuted. Go ahead. Because, because even though 
you know, the forces of crystallization that want to keep things the same are going to get stronger and stronger. It's, it's kind of like, um, you know, what happens when you lose your baby teeth, you know, at first the tooth gets sore and, and, and weak and you don't see the new tooth pushing from above. And so what we're seeing on the surface is the residual of the last ditch efforts of something new pushing down that's extraordinary. I mean, we are literally, I believe, and I don't think this is hyperbole, we are on the edge of losing the fundamentals of American society, the democratic republic in which we live. It's hanging by a thread. And there seems to be a remarkable lack of urgency at several different levels of the body politic to understand the insidious forces that are really trying to not only take away 2022 as a free election of representatives, but 2024 could be nullified by the same trick that a a group of people tried to pull on January 6th of this year, and this time they could easily succeed if the Republicans take the House of Representatives. I mean, you can't get more dire for the body politic than that. And yet, except for a few people, most people seem to be almost complacent and, oh, that's just politics. And, oh, people are just, you know, being uh, hyperbolic. Uh, in other words, there doesn't seem to be the fundamental realization that we're on the knife edge mixing our metaphors madly, of a real precipice. Yeah, I would say not just uh, complacent, I would say in uh, absolute and forcible denial. Okay. See, I think apathy is bigger than denial. If you don't think something can happen, remember, what you can't imagine, you cannot see. It's a cliche we say around here often. I don't think people imagine that this could come to an end and be something totally radically different within months, not years, months. But that's what, but that's what Pluto does. Pluto is the rise and fall of civilizations. Pluto, that 250 year cycle um, is the, is, is about death and rebirth. And so that's, yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to remember too, that, What's happening in this country is not just happening in this country. Uh, every nation, according to its quality and its karma, is is facing its areas of crystallization right now. You read my out, you read my it's, promo. <laughs> it's coming it's coming out in different ways, uh, you know, depending on the character of the nation, but. Uh, all around the planet, the the forces that want to keep things the same are towing in. It's, it's kind of it's, it's really a life and death struggle. It's it's so it is it's so it is. what's the word I'm groping for cataclysmic, and yet people don't seem to realize the magnitude of the awful things that can happen, and even if they do, they got the wrong sign. It's like. Up is down and down is up and black is white and white is black and confusion reigns supreme. Well, I'm much more optimistic because from from the esoteric standpoint, one of the things that is cycling is the emergence of a new kingdom in nature, which is called the kingdom of conscious souls. 
and it has to do with humanity making a leap in consciousness. And this is part of a bigger picture than humanity's petty little designs. And so this is a birth that's going to happen. Our only choice is, you know, how painful the process is going to be. It can be smooth, uh, but that's usually not the, the path humanity chooses. It's kicking and screaming all the way, but come it will sooner or later. Okay, which enters the concept of time. Do we have a time frame? I think that's modulated by humanity. You know, it's interesting, and, and maybe Rick can speak to this, but one of the things that, that I've noticed is that um, when the average person uh, gets, you know, some sort of divination, whether it be tarot cards or I Ching or um, mundane astrology or whatever, as they progress on the path, some of those modalities get less and less precise. And it's harder and harder to read a person because they're moving into sort of a, uh, a new wavelength. It's kind of like if you're in a restaurant and you're sitting at a table talking to your friend about highly esoteric things and thinking thoughty thoughts, <laughs> the... the um, I'm going to steal that one. Thoughty thoughts. Wow. Thoughty thoughts. The the server's not going to see you. The server will will. Oh, you're in a bubble, and they don't even come and interrupt and say, "What would you like for that kind of thing?" Exactly, and the same thing on the freeway. If your if your mind is is operating on a wavelength that's above the cars around you, that's when they're going to sideswipe you because you're you're operating outside of a particular frequency band. And so there's a difference between a lot of these mundane um, uh, tools. Uh, you have to you have to ratchet up a notch as you become more conscious. And that means that there's more fudge room. And so as humanity is making this shift, uh, we've got a lot of fudge room as to how these cycles are going to dovetail into one another. And precise calculation is is not going to cut it. it. It has to do with the way human consciousness is going to be blowing in the wind. And that's We're going back to Heisenberg. I was going to say we're back to fuzzy boundaries and uncertainties and windows and oh that's so frustrating because it's you know I mean it's literally life and death for for freedom and humanity and consciousness in terms of what's going to happen within the next year and a half. Yeah. Well, like I said, I think that the soul of humanity will will win out, but how long that takes and how crooked a road it takes to get there is going to be our choice. See, one of the things that kind of reassures me and makes me more of an optimist than a pessimist is that, you know, I've talked about this on the show before, there are several iterations of what it is to be a futurist, the folks that think that things just go on, and then the folks that think that things kind of go on, but they go up, they get better and better and that kind of thing. And then the folks that really understand futurism and they realize that the future is unpredictable in specific because you have these, as Stephen Jay Gould used in his uh, evolutionary model, uh, moments of punctuated equilibrium, which is in sync with hyperdimensional physics, 
with astrology where the alignments, the frequencies, the resonances occur like heterodyning in radio and suddenly, bang, everything can change. And it's not predictable unless you understand that prediction itself is unpredictable based on the punctuated equilibrium model. That's where I think we're headed. I think that we're in, facing such step functions that will throw plans of the bad guys so far out of kilter that the good guys have more than a shot, but it's going to require some percentage of conscious human beings to move us across the line to where things go up as opposed to going down. Well, now you're talking sort of the hundredth monkey kind of theory kind of, where, kind of. where, you know, it was, it, it took how long for, for runners to break the four-minute mile, and once one person did, it was easier for everybody else? Was that consciousness or was that the physics making it possible metabolically? For, in other words, the earlier discussion Rick and I had, which is, you know, what really forces these things in physical reality, was radioactive decay always constant in the 50s? And then because the physics is changing – suddenly those errors really made become significant and we now know that it's not constant let me let me introduce something different one of the seminal discoveries that i think i've made about the whole covid-19 thing is this extraordinary global life and death cycle every 7 days manifested in the graphs if you go to the other side of midnight.com. I have a frog in my throat here. And you click on item number three. And for you new folks, you get to it by clicking on the other side of midnight.com. Click on tonight's banner of things to come. That will take you to the guest page. Click on the fast links with my name underneath the banner on that page. That will take you to my items. Scroll down a bit to number three. This is a an NBC graph that was uh, garnered from the European CDC when they were still, you know, publishing daily deaths due to COVID-19. And I've been tracking this now since January of 2020. What was so stunning to me as exhibited by that red graph is that every seven days there is a peak in the death from COVID-19. And seven days later, there's a valley. And the difference between the two, between the day with the greatest number of deaths and the day with the least number of deaths can be factors of two or three or five or sometimes for that one big spike on the right, a factor of 10. So it doesn't matter how many people per day on the planet measured for the first time in history because of the global nature of this pandemic and modern communications and computers and the internet and the ability to assemble all these <clears throat> statistics, it didn't matter how many people on any given day were dying or living. It's the cycle which seems to be relentless every seven days, seven and seven and seven and seven and seven, and it goes on and on, and it has not waned. The cycle is there, and I'm thinking by metonymy that because we're only measuring COVID-19, there's all kinds of other deaths, not just of human beings, but of all kinds of other living 
creatures and systems that if we could get the data and assemble them on this kind of a graph, we would find that all life on Earth has this extraordinary seven-day breathing, life, death, life, death, seven, seven, seven. I think this is the reason why we have a seven-day week. So my no, question... No, whoa, 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 stop. You're exactly correct, but that 7777 is the quadrature of the lunar cycle. See, this is what I'm going to ask Rick Levine, oh, okay. who's the guy with the computer and the by, algorithm. By, by, the, by, the, by the way, um, Niels Bohr um, once said, prediction is very difficult, especially if it's about the future. <laughs> <laughs> very, very, very funny. Okay. You, you Here, know, Richard, uh, the, the esoteric model is that that souls don't just randomly decide to pop into incarnation, that groups of souls come into incarnation all over the planet together as part of a wave, an outbreath, and they return the same way. Well, if we could chart births, if there was money, and it's not going to take that much money to actually get this going, because we have all the systems in place. We have the institutions, we've got the communications, we've got you know, the proper people. It's just the will. Do we want to really know? And the fact that the CDC in Europe, from which I started taking these statistics, because I thought it was less politically tainted than our own, that they stop publishing the daily death curves tells me that the bad guys suddenly realized, oh my God, we can't let them realize that. So they closed down that avenue. There are still avenues for finding these statistics, but they're much more difficult to find. Anyway, bottom line, is there a astronomical cycle, and I'm going to come to the moon in a minute, that satisfies this driver, this mechanism, this forcing function of the external field where life and death itself is in resonance with something which is rigorously every seven solar spins? This is not a sidereal day. This is a day measured relative to the sun the biggest hyperdimensional generator in our backyard. And Rick, you said it's the moon, but if that was true, then because the lunar cycle is not linked to the calendar, it should drift. And this cycle does not drift. There's a little bit of errors, a couple of days one way or the other, and then it's back in sync. So it's something fundamental. And my first thought was the moon, divide the 28 days by four, you get seven. The problem is it should drift relative to the civil calendar and it's not doing so. So what am I missing? Hate to disappoint you, but I don't know. Oh. See, I've been looking, no, I mean, go ahead. You no, know, I mean, the thing that struck me and I don't, I, I haven't looked at the data <clears throat> close enough, but it, but what you're saying is that the um, is that the peak at every seven days remains so consistent that if you went to 7,000, well, that's too many, 700 days, um, there would be another peak because that would be, a, a, you know, a, a hundred times seven. Give or take a day or two, yeah. Well, if you go give or take a day or two, then you're allowing for the, um, for the drift. Well, that's what I need the computer model to actually rigorously put this data, which exists, into a predictive algorithm, an astrological algorithm based on the moon, 
And if this is being modulated by the moon, it's stunningly important. It's, it's, it could be remedial in that there is, there is something called uh, uh, chronomedicine, where they've now discovered yeah. that if you give patients medicines, that sometimes they don't work and other times they work very much more efficiently. Sure. If, if we could synchronize the interventions in the disease, in all disease, if in fact it's based on this fundamental cycle and if it's driven by something as simple as the lunar cycle, then this is an extraordinary uh, paradigm shift and we are running out of time. So let me do this. Let me click a couple of switches here and given that we're talking about cycles and we're talking about the physics and the recurrence of strange events on a predictable pattern, it seems to me that this would be something that we want to listen to. Never ending or beginning on an ever-spinning reel Like a snowball down a mountain or a carnival balloon Like a carousel that's turning, running rings around the moon Like a clock whose hands are sweeping past the minutes of its face and the world is like an apple whirling silently in space. Like the circles that you find in the windmills of your mind. Like a tunnel that you follow to a tunnel of its down a hollow to a cavern where the sun fence never shows. Like a door that keeps revolving in a half-forgotten dream. Or the ripples from a pebble someone tosses in a stream. Like a clock whose hands are sweeping past the minutes of its face. And the world is like an apple whirling silently in space. Like the circles that you find in the windmills of your mind. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hodland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. <coughs> Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership cost $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
go so quickly? Was it something that you said? Lovers walk along a shore and leave their footprints in the sand. Is the sound of distant drumming just the fingers of your hand? Pictures hanging in a hallway and a fragment of a phone. I've remembered names and faces. But to whom do they belong? When you knew that it was over, you were suddenly aware that the autumn leaves were turning to the color of his hair. And welcome back, everyone. Sunday night, Monday morning, here in June, June 20th, 21st of 2021. We're talking about <clears throat> and I can hardly talk because I can hardly, uh, you know, frogs are very copious here in the desert. We're talking about cycles. What influences humanity? Are they predictable? Is astrology the way we can predict the windows of the matrix when things change, when the future is born and the past goes away? Okay, Georgia. Yes. Uh, <laughs> two, two things on the lunar cycle. First of all, it was many decades ago now that Tom Graves came out with his book, Needles of Stone, that talked about a 28-day cycle of energy moving from the atmosphere down standing stone into the earth like an acupuncture needle and for two weeks, and then for two weeks, the energy moving from under the earth up the standing stone back into the atmosphere. It's a, it's a breathing cycle of the earth. We mirror that in our bodies, and I'm not just talking about the women's menstrual cycle. The cycle of the cerebrospinal fluid follows that time. From the time that the cerebrospinal fluid is produced in the lateral ventricles of the brain in each hemisphere, it, it kind of pulls in the middle of the head, which is a whole nother alchemical story. And then it moves down the spinal cord to the end of the spinal cord. It comes back up and is reabsorbed in the arachnid spaces within the brain. And that's a 28-day cycle. Hmm. So our, our bodies are in tune with the 28-day cycle and breath of the earth. But the death cycle, I've discovered, and there's also a group of researchers, one in Israel at, uh, I think, Haifa University and the two more at the University of Chicago. And I've been trying to get them uh, on the show, and it's been a little difficult. So uh, if certain person is listening, you open that dialogue. I need to talk to you about how we get them on the show. They have correlated. They have discovered independently the same seven-day cycle. But they think it could be attributed to something mundane like, you know, it's always easier to, you know, get in the hospital and come out alive during the week than on the weekend, that kind of thing, uh, because of staff and ranking order of people who know what they're doing and people who know less of what they're doing. 
But I don't think this is that mundane because it doesn't correlate with weekends and weekdays. It correlates with seven days, and it appears to be kind of immutable. If it really does correlate to the lunar cycle, 90 degrees, Rick, of the lunar cycle, every 90 degrees, then that would tell us something extraordinary, and it could be used as a guidestone for all kinds of other celestial terrestrial connections that at the moment are completely ignored. Right. But what Georgia is saying is that there is a mundane rhythm, but it's not exactly, uh, it's close, but not exactly that of, well, it's four times. So I don't know. It, it, it's, it, it's, 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 it's the month. It's the 28 days of the four sevens Four sevens, 28. So if mm-hmm. that's a primary cycle, why are we seeing a four division or is there something else close to it which is really doing this and that we're not aware of. I've been looking at all kinds of astronomical cycles, including things that, you know, look really outrageous. Uh, Ron and I have been discussing this quietly kind of off screen, off camera, uh, and nothing really seems to fit. I will say one very interesting thing. Seven is the primary fundamental rotational period. uh, I'm sorry, rotational geometry of a tetrahedron. And the tetrahedron is the core of the whole hyperdimensional model because of the manifestation of energy upwellings in terms of circumscribed tetrahedral geometries in the sun, in other stars like Betelgeuse, in planets like uh, Jupiter, Jupiter's great red spot. The biggest volcanoes on Earth are at 19.5. The biggest volcanoes on other planets are at 19.5, like at Venus with uh, uh, Aphrodite Terra. Uh, so you've got this energy cycle going that appears to conform to a rotational spin of a tetrahedral model. Is that somehow modulating the physics of life and death on Earth? That's my, my question, and I don't have an answer yet. Me either. Mm. See, the nice thing I like about Rick, George, is he's a humble, he's a real scientist. When he doesn't know, when he doesn't know, he says he doesn't know. But what I'd like you to do, and I will help you obviously do this because I'll connect you with the right sources, if we can plug this curve into your algorithms so we get it as precise as is mathematically possible, that may give us a new uh, insight into what's driving this. Yeah. Don't, I, it, yeah, it could. Okay. Then I'll connect you with the right sources, and then we'll see what happens. So getting back, Georgia, to the bigger, bigger picture, there's been a lot of ferment this recently about ancient former life on, of all places, Venus. Remember the models that say it had once had oceans and the discovery of phosphine in the atmosphere and mm-hmm. the, the, the NASA has now launched two new missions that are going to give us stunning new data about Venus, the Da Vinci Plus and I forget the other one. Um, Venus seems to be kind of, pun intended, in ascendant here in terms of public political space consciousness. Is it possible that in fact Earth is not one of our homes, but another place we should be looking seriously toward would be Venus and then some kind of stunning dislocation in a very long and completely hidden human history. 
Well, the esoteric model refers to Venus as our alter ego or our sister planet. And the esoteric model is that all organized life has an energy network that supports it. And the nexus of of these energy networks, the Hindus call chakras or energy centers. In the, the model of the solar system, the planets are the chakras for the solar life. And that uh, Venus is our older sister. And that the kingdoms in nature are chakras within the body of the planet. Humanity is considered the throat center or the, uh, the throat chakra of the planet. The planet Venus, its humanity, not necessarily in the same form as ours, or even in the same dimension as ours, but its humanity, its life that does for that planet what humanity does for this planet, is more advanced than ours. And this is why our original spiritual hierarchy during the Atlantean period was said to have been borrowed from Now, the interesting thing is part of this model is that Earth is the last planet in our solar system whose life wave is in physical dense. And we're moving into a period where things are becoming less dense and humanity is sort of moving into the radio station where we're going to pick up this life that's always been here, but we've never been able to see it because it's been out of phase. Well, we're coming into phase with it. Hmm. And, and, and so, you know, the, the possibility of finding you know, not only the vestiges of life that was, but moving into life that is. Hmm. Well, this gets back to my radio model, the heterodyning thing, you know, getting on frequency or subharmonics or whatever. It's all ultimately about frequency matching. And mm-hmm. if you're, you can, there can be broadcast out there, but if your receiver isn't set correctly, they exist, they're real, but you're not going to detect them until right. you change the dial. And what changes the dial is the big modulating master of all these cycles, which I think is the 25,920-year processional cycle of the Earth doing its thing, modulating all of these relationships in terms of energy, in terms of amplitude of frequency, in terms of information transfer. And we're very close, if not at the peak, of that huge 26,000 year cycle so no wonder everything is hitting the rotating kitchen appliance right now yeah and and the esoteric model of that is we're moving from not only the age of Pisces into Aquarius but the esoteric model would say we're moving from the age of the sixth ray into the age of the seventh ray meaning that the age of the sixth ray the the, the driving force of the energy was from matter upward toward spirit. Mm-hmm. And this was the age where we aspired to things like, you know, you look at the Greek civilization, we aspired to beauty and truth and, and nobility and philosophy. The 
age of the seventh ray that we're moving into is to bring that divinity that's been contacted back into matter and make it real down mm. here. There's that thy, seven again. Yep. That king, the thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Seven to tetrahedral br- spins. Mm. To bring again that that divinity that's been aspired toward, to bring that now into reality down here and make the below match the above. Okay, here are, are two more puzzles, all right? If you go back to uh, Radio with Pictures, to my section, <clears throat> you know how to get there, all right? Scroll down to number four. Number four is a recent graph a few days ago, not of the deaths, but of the test results of people who contacted or contracted COVID-19 since January when it was first began to be measured of last year, okay? What's amazing, given that this is a relatively simple chemistry test, regardless of which test you're, you're using, it's still chemistry. The chemistry test to detect the presence of COVID-19 also, and this is mind-blowing, and I've held off for weeks and weeks and weeks before talking about this, it also appears to be on this bizarre seven-day cycle. Give you an example. If, if, if let's say you have COVID-19 and you go to a hospital to get a test, on certain days, the test will come back positive that you have COVID-19. A day later, even if you got COVID-19, the test will come back negative. And we have a few examples of this. One was a governor of Ohio, Governor DeWine, who literally got, because he was going to the White House to meet uh, President Trump, so they tested him before he got on the plane and when he got off in Washington. Before he got on the plane, he was positive. So, of course, it, it threw everything into a tizzy. He gets off the plane in Washington to give him another test, and he's negative. And they give him another test, and he's still negative. So the testing itself appears to be, in terms of positive or negative, responding chemically to this invisible seven-day cycle, just like the physicist at the University of Illinois who detected the rhythmic changes in radioactive decay based on the annual cycle of us going around the sun. So, Rick, we're back to hyperdimensional physics. You can't even trust chemistry to be the same on Excessive days because of an underlying driver, which has only come to light because of the mass scale of the testing resources and the number of people looking and the fact that the data is published all over the world with everybody having access to it. And this extraordinary synchronicity now shows up in both the deaths and in people even, quote, having the disease And again, finding out what's driving this seven-day cycle seems to me overwhelmingly important. What are the days of the week that the deaths spike on? They, it's not because the calendar changed. Like you know, the months are not all equal. No, the months aren't equal. But you said it's. You said one of the anomalies of this whole thing is that it doesn't drift; that it stays seven days. So, I was, so if it stays seven days, the days of the week by name don't correspond with the months. 
Exactly. So what, exactly. February so has only day, 28. So what days? What days of the week are de- the days that are spiking? It depends on which day and which month you're looking. It changes day by day, month to month. So it's not in sync with the civil calendar. That's where we need the algorithm. That's where we need a computer program that looks at astrological, you know, cycles and matches what we're seeing. Right, we have to talk more about this off, exactly. off, off air exactly. because, because it doesn't make sense to me. You know, the, the, um, the esoteric model for many, many, many decades has said you don't get surgery on full moon times because people are more likely to bleed much more at full moon times than at other times. Okay. So there's part of a cycle as well. well and that goes back to, oh, that goes go back all the way to the Greek tradition, but it turns out that there has been work that shows that surface tension rises and falls not only with the lunar cycle but with the time of year. That there's that there's lower surface tension in the spring than there is at other times of year, and that there's lower surface tension at the full moon, which means that uh, it would take more uh, energy to clot blood. Which is back to chemistry changes based on the hyperdimensional physics, the torsion field. Anyway, uh, final mystery. Um, we we talked about the big deal about um, Percy landing on uh, Mars on February 18th, coinciding yep. with this amazing. You know, resonance of conjunctions. Well, no, one of Uranus Saturn. Uranus Saturn. Exactly. One of the weirdest things, if you go to number five in my section, pop that up, you'll see a NASA image. Actually, this is a European image of the southern part of the crater where uh, Percy is landed. Uh, it's called Jezero. It's in the northern hemisphere of Mars, at about eighteen and a half degrees north. And in the southern part, there are these big, massive Sidonia-sized, huge eroded pyramids. That's the first picture at the top. The second, yep. this uh, by the way, a, a, a poster prepared by Andrew Curry, who is really, really incredibly talented in doing this. Anyway, I'm, I'm I'm looking at these images after the landing, and I'm looking for the big architecture because it's obvious now that the secret mission of Perseverance is to study like the other missions to Mars, ancient Martian archaeology. So I'm looking to see what's around in the neighborhood. And at the southern part of this 30-mile-wide crater, there are these very large, very eroded structures. And I noticed that one set appeared to have a pattern. And you can see it easily in the second uh, uh, image drawing uh, in in Andrew's uh, uh, poster. It appears to be the geometric alignment of the Orion Belt stars, the three stars with two aligned and then one offset, as well as the uh, alignment of the pyramids on the Giza Plateau in Egypt, which according to Baval are a mirror, supposedly, of the Orion Belt stars. So far, Have you so- shared this with Robert? Oh, yes, yes. So far, so good. But when you look at the next set of objects right next to it, which are slightly smaller, they are mirror imaged. In other words, the big ones, the Sidonia aged ones, if we're judging by scale and erosion, appear to have one orientation. And the others, as mirror opposites, have another orientation. And they're the exact opposite. 
And when you do the math and the calculations, you can actually derive dates from the movement of the belt stars relative to each other. It's called proper motion. And when you do that, the first set, the big set, is about 450 to 500,000 years old when they were built on Mars, the same age as Sidonia. The second set are around 300,000 years old, and they're the mirror image of the uh, earlier set, and they're identical in model to what was built much, much later on the Giza Plateau. The question I have is, if the ancient guys on Mars were duplicating the appearance of the key belt stars of this key constellation mythologically of Osiris, Orion, etc. Why is there the mirror image on a smaller scale built right next to it, which is then mirrored here on Earth? Is it possible, and this is going to raise a lot of eyebrows again, is it possible this memorializes an event where somehow through some physics, Georgia, we literally were flipped into an alternate mirrored dimension placed in quarantine either by a huge catastrophe in the physics of the solar system or by deliberate design of a physics that put us in isolation kind of like the phantom zone in the superman movies where the bad guys are quarantined and is alex jones correct are we in fact and this is the template, this is the indicator, are we deliberately living through some external means in some kind of prison planet scenario? And is this in resonance with the physics of cycles, including perhaps the processional cycle, to where at some point the cycle ends and the mirror is collapsed and we are back to, quote, normal and is that when communication, full communication between us on Earth and higher dimensional realms can be restored? There is something to that because in the Kabbalistic tradition, uh, where it has four trees of life that are hooked together, uh, the top tree relates to the cosmic buddhic plane or the plane of the soul. Below that, the cosmic mental. Below that, the cosmic astral or emotional. And below that, the cosmic physical. But under that, there is an upside-down mirrored reflected tree called the cliff-off. And physical humanity is supposedly living within the cliff-off. Oh, my God. Because Andrew pointed out to me when we started discussing this, and believe me, there's been a lot of discussion behind the scenes on this. That's why at the bottom of his poster, he's got these three images of the Taj Mahal, a, a monument in, I believe it's Belarus, and then the Washington Monument. All of these major connections to the celestial are mirrored in water, like a mirrored reality, like a metaphor for the fact that we are living in a mirrored reality. And you know, Rick, there's all kinds of physics, real world, mainstream Western physics that says there's something weird going on. And I'll, I'll give you two examples. 
in the normal calculations of physicists, you know, Big Bang, creation of matter, et cetera, et cetera, there should be equal amounts of matter and antimatter. You know, in normal matter, you've got a positive proton orbited in hydrogen by a negative electron, right? Well, mm-hmm. in antimatter, which had been created since the 1940s with the Bevatron at the uh, laboratory there in Berkeley, they were able to create anti-hydrogen, a negative uh, proton and a positive electron called uh, a uh, positron and put them in orbit and they are stable until the positive version comes in contact with the negative version. Then they both dissolve in a burst of gamma rays energy with complete conversion of the energy of, of the matter of the proton electron combination into energy. The problem is when we look at the universe, by every measure that astronomers have been looking and cosmologists, our universe seems to be overwhelmingly positive matter and not antimatter. And no one can figure out in their equations why we appear to be in one universe of one polarity and there's not equal, equal measure of both. This mirroring, this phantom zone, this deliberate sequestration by something or someone of us in another dimension would seem to be an extraordinary possible answer. The other is chirility. Chirility is handedness in molecules of substances we digest as nutrients to survive. It turns out that every molecule, uh, like sugars, can be built as a mirror image of the molecules that we ingest. The problem is, and there have been some very interesting science fiction stories built around this idea, that when we build these molecules, if you build them wrong, if you build them with the other handedness, they do not nourish you. You starve to death, even though the molecules are identical, they're just mirror images. And that plane, again, this is just the beginning of an extraordinary conversation Uh, We're at the end of the show. Guys, I'm going to have you come back after we've digested all this. Rick, you and I will talk off air about computer modeling. I want to thank both my guests tonight, Rick Levine and Georgia Lambert, for an extraordinarily interesting and open-ended discussion. And all I can say is stay tuned because the best, I think, is yet to come. Good night, everyone, and remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night. <laughs>